the person we want to become is already inside of us. And so it's about unlearning everything that isn't us so that the person we want to become can finally emerge. Hey, welcome back to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. Behavior change as, as a coach, as a performance coach, working with men over 35, high performers over 35, whether it's executives, athletes, entrepreneurs, CEOs from all over the world, I can write the best workouts in the world. I can write the best nutrition plans in the world. I can bite, write the best lifestyle change, lifestyle shift programs in the world. And still, some people fall short. Still, I fall short certain times in my life of goals I'm working to achieve and ideas that I want to implement. And sometimes I procrastinate. And sometimes life can be challenging. Sometimes the goals we set out for ourselves don't get adhered to, don't get followed through on. Sometimes we self-sabotage. I've been guilty of this. I assume most of you have too. If you're, if you're someone who's listening to your podcast, chances are you're trying to learn something. Chances are there's something you feel like you're not quite living up to your potential in. You're always trying to learn. If you're always trying to advance yourself, there's some level of aspiration. Maybe there's some level of inadequacy there. I know I live with it. And so I still still live with it. And I, I still see, search the world for the greatest experts I can find to ultimately help us, help me, and then help you change life, change trajectory, change circumstances, uh, change the way we look, change the way we feel, change the way we perform. And today's guest is nothing short of remarkable when it comes to understanding behavior change, when it comes to understanding what drives our behaviors. Britt Lefko joins me today in my home to ultimately reveal her process to merge what we want to do with what we are doing. And many of you know that certain things drive our behaviors. Our subconscious is driving the bus. And no matter how conscious you are of your goals, no matter how conscious you are of your behaviors, there's times when your subconscious drivers, they take over. There's primal urges to eat. There's primal urges to fornicate. There's primal urges to be restful and sleep. And the world knows this. And there's scientists out there trying to manipulate us and to eat food and watch pornography and ultimately sit on our butt and be lazy. And if you're a high achiever like me and you want to live your greatest life, ultimately, there needs to be something that goes into merging the subconscious and conscious. And some people do this naturally. Many, many high achievers just do this naturally. We set a goal and we move toward it and nothing gets in our way. And then other people are sometimes in our life, it doesn't have to be other people, but sometimes that doesn't happen. Like, gosh, you know, what, what was I doing? Why am I doing that to myself? Why do I keep ultimately setting myself up for success and then falling just a little bit shorter, maybe not even starting to begin with? Britt Lefko joins me today to talk about how sometimes our early age development shapes our beliefs around this world. And these conflicts create decision-making processes that ultimately are not harmonious. We also discuss how to break through limiting beliefs and tap into your true potential. We talk about how to empower yourself even as an adult. Ultimately, you know, if this is a conversation involving me, it probably somehow brings my children into it because children are my highest value. And I know a lot of listeners have children as well. And ultimately, my big mission in life is to support men so that we can lead children, so we can lead our families, so we can lead our businesses to ultimately be the best we can and, and be the best it can and they can. Plus, we talk about the steps to develop self-trust and attunement with your own emotions. Sometimes as men, we're disconnected. We just move toward 
what we want. And sometimes that can cause pain, that can cause fear, that can cause stress, that can cause overwhelming stress and emotions in some people. And Brett also provides an incredible framework to effectively set and achieve goals while eliminating self-defeating behaviors. Gentlemen, ladies, you're going to love it. Brit is a star, truly, truly a star. And I was very blessed to have her fly in to do this podcast live and in person with me. And I know you're going to love the conversation. She's actually been gracious enough to come into my personal community of uh, clients and teach the clients one-to-one or teach clients as a group. And we've, we've reaped such incredible benefits that I wanted to invite her on the podcast to share her wisdom with you. Today's podcast is brought to you by our friends at Buy Optimizers. They've done it again with another incredible product called Collagenius. Collagenius. Uh, this product is an incredible blend of superfoods. You've got four different mushrooms in there. The mushrooms we're taking anyways, the lion's mane, the chaga, the reishi, the cordyceps. And they are hyper-concentrated, 50 to 1 and 101 extracts. It's also got high-quality collagen protein for people who are taking collagen anyways, which is obviously incredible or restoring your tissues, could potentially be your hair, skin, and nails. Um, restorative collagen ultimately promotes um, incredible vitality through those uh, collagenous tissues in the body. Collagenes delivers an incredible boost of energy without the need for caffeine and ultimately improves mental alertness. You know, lion's mane is something I've used for many, many years, been a big advocate. So Collagenius can be reached over at Newtopia. If you head over to newtopia.com, that's N-O-O-T-O-P-I-A.com. You can get hooked up with 10% off your first order. And this is a product that I like to add to my coffee every morning. If you're someone who's doing collagen in your coffee or mushrooms in your coffee, I actually have flavored collagenius. I personally use the the chocolate flavored collagenius in my, in my morning coffee. And sometimes in my afternoon shake, I'll throw a couple of scoops in there post-workout, even pre-workout to really give me that extra bump that I'm looking for. So once again, you can head over to Newtopia, N-O-O-T-O-P-I-A.com slash muscle genius. And you, you can also maybe reach these through our show notes as well. This and link to all of our sponsors will happen in our show notes, which is at muscleintelligence.com. Ladies, gentlemen, uh, thank you for being here. Thank you for being a listener of the podcast. If you guys are enjoying the podcast, I'd love to hear about it. Listen all the way to the end. We've got some really cool information coming at you. It sounds like part of what you do is helping people find their their art, their ability to express, mm-hmm. getting through the, you know, as we just talked about prior to starting, is just getting through the, the preconception that something needs to be a certain way. Mm-hmm. You need to act a certain way. You need to speak a certain way. You need to show up a certain way. And removing all of that mm-hmm. so you can get to like what, what I would, you know, my language is like what exists at your soul. Mm-hmm. Just like give that to the world. Mm-hmm. So I feel like a decent description of... Yeah, I mean, I think we just feel so blocked, right? It's like there's this person that we are and then there's all of these ideas of who we should be and how we should show up. And those impact our ability to just be who we are. And when you get all the shoulds out of the way, then all of a sudden you get to experience yourself. Something I I believe so deeply is there's this person we want to become, right? It's like who we are and who we want to become. And we believe it's going to take us a long way to get there. And there's a lot to do, right? There's a lot to become. And in in my opinion, the person we want to become is already inside of us. And so it's about unlearning everything that isn't us so that the person we want to become can finally emerge. 
And so it doesn't take a lot of work to become that. It's just an unlearning. It's just a releasing everything that isn't you so that that person can finally run yeah, the show. There's probably multiple layers to that, right? Because there's certainly the the person you want to be, and then there's the person you want to be and their capabilities, their mm-hmm. skills, because you have to accumulate those. Yes, yes. But like the beingness is like, yeah. I just want to be free to express myself, be mm-hmm. free to love myself, mm-hmm. be free to yeah, do what I want to do when I want to do it right. as the person I want to do right. it as with no fear and no mm-hmm. no fear of judgment. Right. Just like show up at this beautiful expression of what you were born as right. yeah. without somebody else putting their expectations and, and trauma onto you. We had a beautiful conversation yesterday about what happens before you're seven years old and you're this meaning-making machine and I'd love to have you maybe walk us through how you articulate that. Yeah, I want to say one thing on what you just said and then I want to answer that. But I think so often the the building of the skills is interesting, but when you really ask someone with deep honesty, what do you want? It's not the skills. Mm. It's how I want to feel. It's I want to feel confident. I want to feel safe. I want to feel alive. So yeah. that idea of the person you want to become being in you is really predicated upon this notion that like what we truly want Building the skills is a fun adventure, right? But if you ask someone in their in their truest day, like, what do you want? It's like, I just want to love myself. I just want to feel like I matter. Worthy. I want to feel important. I want to feel worthy, right? I want to feel like I can be myself. And, and that, like, that's what we already have inside of us. And then from that place, developing the skills is a completely different experience. Developing a skill from a place of this is going to make me good enough is stressful, developing a skill from I'm already good enough now going back to art like I want to create what what can I do that's infinite possibility a place of love it's yeah. completely it's it's completely different rather so, than inadequacy right exactly so just wanted to add that in there yeah. so from the zero to seven perspective I think one of the most important pieces to understand is that we don't have a prefrontal cortex your prefrontal cortex is logic reason rationalization willpower it's the part of your brain that visions and plans and understands it's the part of your brain that knows the answers it's it's clear and it's brilliant and it doesn't exist so what you have is your amygdala which is your emotional brain and so during those early years you don't see cause and effect you don't understand that the people in your life have contexts outside Mm. of you (laughs) you are the context and i think so often we throw around this word ego and it has so many meanings but for me Ego really is just the inability to understand cause and effect outside of you. So if you're little and the world is because of you, it only makes sense that if a parent is angry, well, it must be because of me. If I were different, they wouldn't be angry. And if there's fighting or if there's financial troubles, if I were different, things would be different. And so during those early years when all you have is this emotional brain where everything revolves around you, you look at the world around you. And the question becomes, if I were better, right, could things be different? And so we create these beliefs that make us responsible for the world. And then we carry those beliefs with us for the rest of our life. And we don't even realize that they're running the show. And I think one of the most important like facts, right, you throw a fact out every once in a while, a fact grabs you and it's that the part of the brain that, like I said, this logical, reason, reasonable brain 
that that's not the part of our brain that makes decisions. So if you look at functional MRI data, the part of the brain that makes your decisions is your amygdala. It is your emotional brain. So if you have these belief systems that I'm not good enough and the way to be good enough is to be successful or to look a certain way, that's the brain that's driving your behavior. So when we look at like, why, like, why do I, I set my alarm at five o'clock? Why do I not get out of bed until eight? Right? It's because your prefrontal cortex wants to get up early, but your amygdala doesn't. Right. And if discipline is kind of predicated upon this idea that our prefrontal cortex knows what we want, but our amygdala wants to feel safe or wants to feel worthy or wants to be liked, or that's the part of the brain that's that's driving the show. So that's where that kind of internal conflict comes from is because the the brain that was five years old and looking around and trying to figure out what's wrong with me, that's that's the you that's driving the car. So much in me. <laughs> All right, here we go. Uh, you know, and I'm sure everyone listening, including myself, is is one, thinking about my past, two, thinking about my children's past. And I'm like, ah, oh, that's so interesting. And then realizing that the meaning that we place on things at this young age is literally forming our worldview and who we are and how we show up in this world. And ultimately, why we either live a fulfilled life or not a fulfilled life, and we follow through on the things we say or not, mm-hmm. based on the meanings we were creating when we were in our youth. Yeah. An example that I actually gave you this morning when we were talking is it's like we're born and everything's on the table. Like everything's an option. Everything is possible. Infinite possible. Right. As, yeah. And that is infinite possibility. And during our childhood, we start kind of taking things off the table. It's like, well, I don't I don't have that, so I must not deserve it. And my family doesn't have that, so it must not be possible. And, you know, this type of person, right? Whatever those things are, we start taking things off the table, what we're worthy of, what's possible, what's going to be easy, what's going to be hard, what's going to work, what isn't going to work. And all of a sudden, we're left with what's on the table. And it's not that what's on the table is bad. Those are our options, right? It's like, I can have steak, I can have chicken, and I can have broccoli. That's it. And it's like, no, but there's infinite things that you can have, right? The art of food, you can create anything. But in your mind, those are the options. And so you work with what you've got. And so often, I think where we get stuck is going back to the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex. Like Your your prefrontal cortex is like, I want to have a successful business, or I want to have a certain type of body, or I want to have a certain type of relationship, or I want to have a certain relationship with money. And then your amygdala is like, no, that's actually not an option. So you don't look for it. You don't create it. And if an opportunity presents itself, your reticular activating system, right, the part of your brain that looks for what you believe to be possible, right, looks for what you know or recognize, really Mm -hmm. can go a lot more into the reticular activating system. But that part of your brain doesn't even recognize it. So what we say yes to and what we say no to has so much to do with what we believe is possible or probable or appropriate or likely. And then all of a sudden it limits our ability to actually follow those dreams, right? And the word dreams can be seen as such a cheesy thing, but your dreams are just really what you can come up with as possible. And so there's, again, this internal conflict of what is a realistic dream. A realistic dream so often really is just what's on the table. I feel like my head's gone. <laughs> this was an adult reflecting on whether it be my current circumstance or my life up to this point or anyone's life up to this point. 
and never having realized that there's an there's a table out there somewhere that belongs to you with mm-hmm. infinite possibilities on it. Yeah. You just didn't know that was there. You like moved over to the table over here. Yeah. And this one's only got three shitty things on it. Yeah. This is the three shitty thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's people out there being like, oh, I thought this was my table, but in reality, your table's over there. Yeah. How do we train our minds or, or maybe how do you work with people to start, uh, if the right word is training our minds or, or releasing our minds to start going back to this this place of like, yeah, I, I'm capable of so much more than I've always believed. Yeah. So I want to give the answer for everybody and then I'll give how I work with clients. Yeah. I want to make sure everyone has something to yeah. take with them. I think the, the first step is getting clear on what you took off the table. Because when we take something off the table, we just call it a fact and then we stop thinking about it because it's in the already done pile. Mm. So I think the first thing is looking at what have I taken off the table? Where are the places where I've said, oh, yeah, money sounds great, but you have to work really hard for it and I don't want to work hard. Right. Or I want to start a business, but you have to have X, Y and Z, you know, skills or you have to have X, Y and Z credibility and I don't have that. So I took it off the table or I'd love to have a great relationship, but... So as soon as you use the word but, right? It's like, look look for the but. <laughs> so look at first, what did you take off the table? And then from that space, it gives you this empowered creativity where you can look and say, okay, well, when I took that off the table, was that a fact? What was it that had me take it off the table? And get curious, right? It's like, well, I grew up in a family where there was a lot of fighting. So I just assumed that that's that's a fact. That's how it is. That that's how people are. Or I grew up in an environment where there's a lot of scarcity. So it's just, I, I assumed that that was for me. Other people have money, but not me. Or I grew up and I had a, a weight issue and I just assumed that health and fitness was for other people and not for me. And once you realize it, it, it gives you this awareness where it ignites the creative part of your brain. And the way that I think about it, it's like pulling a thread right? It's like once you see that there's a thread to pull, you can pull it. If you don't know there's a thread, you just, right? So start to look at what you took off the table, then you can get creative where you start to pull the thread. That That's that's pulling on the thread of infinite possibility. So that's something that I think anyone can play with. For me, what I'm focused on is from my from my point of view, it's up to me to figure out what are the things that you took off the table. And so I can help tell you these are the things that you took off the table and then help you put them back on. So it's reframing a lot of what is real, what is possible, what is likely, what is for you and not for you so that you can reclaim everything you've disowned, right? So if you've disowned 90% of the table, it's reclaiming all of those things as possible for you. And then it's not up to me to give you advice or tell you what to go do. You already have that. Once you know that it's possible, things become easy right? Everything can be easy until we make it hard. Everything is possible until we make it impossible. What what process do you recommend for identifying what needs to go back on the table? I know you're not a big fan mm-hmm. of process, but like if I'm sitting here going, yeah, I know I've taken a lot of things off the table. I want to come back to my life and live it from a place of infinite possibility. Yeah. It's like journaling. So there's there actually is a something that I, I do with people that is really, really effective and really, really simple. You can just close your eyes and you imagine an ideal. It's like something that if everything were possible, right? It's like you go back to infinite possibility. This has nothing to do with your skills, your life, any data points that you have. Just like if you were to dream into the absolute ideal possibility and spend a minute doing that, and then immediately what's your first block? 
So my, my ideal circumstance of like how I want my life to look right now, but it's not there or what? Ex- yeah. Yeah. So it can be, so I, I would, I would maybe separate it. So if, if the goal is I want to explore all of my blocks, I want to look at everything I took off the table. Like I have no idea what I took off the table before I listened to this podcast. All I know is I was living my life and I was doing my best and I was pushing myself in the ways I knew how to push myself. And now I have this new information. Like, where do I start? So it maybe like separate, right? So you've got relationships, you've got business, you've got, you know, your confidence, you've got, you know, friendship or community. So kind of whatever buckets you want to, however you want to organize your life. And one of them can be like art and creative expression. One of them can be financial, whatever those are. And then imagine what would your ideal relationship be to that thing? So let's, let's use an example. Let's say that it's confidence. I'm like, okay, my sense of myself what would be my like dream state of me being me? And I start to imagine I'm like, I spend a lot of alone time because like I love, I love me, I love being me. And then all of a sudden I'm like, yeah, but right, that yeah, but is everything. I, th- I think a lot of the kind of personal development industry teaches you to shove down the yeah, buts because they're negative. And I feel the opposite. I'm like, bring them up and look at them. The more we shove them down, the more they're going to run our life and the more we're not going to notice. So I feel the opposite. I'm like, it's not about being negative. It's not about like droning on or, or, you know, just like feeling crappy, but it's about deliberately and intentionally surfacing that the yeah, buts are the things you took off the table. So in order to, to deal with them, you have to know what they are. So you dream into the ideal for again, business, right? It's like, okay, if I'm an entrepreneur, it's like that, you know, I, I go from, I'm at a million and my company's a hundred million. The blocks come up pretty quick. It's like, oh God, I could never do that because great. That's the thing you took off the table, right? It's like, oh, I don't, I don't have the resources for that. So one way to look at it is that you need resources to build that business. How else might you be able to build that business, right? Where does network come in? Where to, right? It's, there's, there's, a, there's infinite, possibilities. But in order to start coming up with possibilities, you have to know what you're coming up with possibilities for. The thing you're coming up with possibilities for is the thing you took off the table. And the thing you took off the table is your block. It's your reason why you can't have what you want. So I've created a list of blocks. Mm -hmm. What do I do? So when you have the blocks, what you want to do is you want to start exploring alternative ways of thinking. So this is where you utilize your logical, creative brain. And one helpful way to do it is to depersonalize it. So when you're looking within your own blocks, you are going to be blocked by how you feel. And one thing that I think is really fascinating, your prefrontal cortex, again, is your highest level of thinking. It is your brilliant brain. It helps you to, you know, you think about flow state. It's like when you're really in it, it's like your prefrontal cortex is winning, right? Right. When you are emotionally triggered, you actually lose access to your prefrontal cortex, right? So the part of your brain that you need to solve complex problems goes offline when you're emotionally triggered. When you're looking at your own stuff, that can often bring up a lot of fears. And so just one way to look at it is you want to make sure that you are emotionally regulated and that you're not in a triggered state. So if you're thinking about your own things, that can be emotional, right? So you can just think about it objectively, like with someone else, right? And if there was another person who was dealing with this block, what would be some other creative explanation? Like giving advice to your best friend. Like we're so good right. at giving advice to our best friend, but so bad at taking it ourselves, right? Right, exactly. Right, exactly. So, so I would say for somebody who has the list of blocks, 
you want to depersonalize it, and then you want to get really creative. Like this can be a place of play. Another thing I want to say is I think in a lot of ways, the personal development industry is kind of characterized by this, like you have to be different than you are and it's hard and it's got to be painful. And either you're sitting on a couch crying about your childhood, right? Or, right. And and I think that this can be fun. It should be fun. Right. Like this can be a creative exploration of infinite possibility. Like the way that I think about personal development is that we have access to infinite possibility, but we're like covering our eyes, we're covering our ears and we're missing out on so much. So it is a reclamation. Looking through a straw. Right. The visual I got. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And so one of, so some of the terminology that I really like is like, I love the word reclaiming right? It's like we are reclaiming so much of the human experience that we have unconsciously disowned. And like, that's exciting. And it can be fun and creative. And a lot of my personal journey, because my journey was that, right? My journey was was the hard one. It was like, you suck. You're not okay the way that you are. Handle it, right? Like, if you're going to be in this world, like, you've, you've got to figure this out. You've got to be better. And so personal development wasn't fun. It was excruciating, Right? I used to sit in my journal and like write down my negative beliefs and like try to figure out how to fix them. It was horrible. Like I hated it. And I resented personal development because I thought that it was painful. And it was like this thing that I had to be that I, I couldn't figure out. And in the last couple of years after working through that, I'm like, God, exploring infinite possibilities is a blast. And I, I, I want for people to get that this is not about being better, that better doesn't exist. It's about reclaiming yourself to be able to enjoy being you, that maybe instead of the goal being to be better, like what if the goal is to enjoy your experience on this planet? Yeah. So I think in the experience you just explained there where you were kind of suffering through it, Mm -hmm. would it be reasonable to say a big part of that was your perception? Like you could have easily said, taken that, like, hey, I want to change these beliefs. I'm going to make it fun. I'm going to make it playful. So you can still you can still go through the process. Totally. But like, almost like celebrating the fact that you've discovered them. And because like, like, I would say from an outsider looking in to anyone, the fact that you can identify your limit, limiting beliefs and go, oh, yes, celebrate this. Now, okay, now what can I do to release this? Or, you know, thank my younger self for like, hey, you had this awesome belief which kept you really safe. Right. And now let's let's let that go and let's move through that because that service at the time, but doesn't serve me anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Does that, does that feel like a yeah? Like a, yeah, because I think anyone sitting at home, you know, you know the the idea of like the you know the second mountain or one of the examples I'll often give. I've I've done a pretty some some mountain hikes like you, and there's many times where. Yeah, you, know, cl- you said an example like this yesterday. You're climbing a mountain and it's just like horrible. You're like, I'm just, I'm dreading every step. This is the worst experience of my life. And one time I recall, I was looking up and I was in California. I was like, this is one of the most beautiful days of my life. I'm yeah. here with two of my best friends in the world. I'm just going to enjoy this. So instead of like trudging through neck deep mud the whole I, way up, yeah, I was like, oh, I'm just going to be like, I'm so grateful I'm here. Thank you. All of a sudden, boom, things become easy and it's, yeah. nothing changed except right. my perception. Yeah, I, I believe so strongly. It's like mindset. One, one of the reasons why I'm like mindset is everything is because you can be at the most beautiful waterfall in the entire world looking out and it's so magical. And if you are feeling like crap about how you look in your bathing suit, you're not enjoying it, <laughs> totally. right? And on the flip side, 
you know, you can be sitting in a jail cell. And if you are meditating on the magic of life, it's like in that moment you are in bliss. Yeah. And so mindset is the difference between you enjoying life and and not. And then and then the second piece is mindset is the difference between you going after everything you want and sitting on the couch, right? If we feel worthy of something, again, we, we put it back on the table. If we feel unworthy of something, we take it off the table. And so there's so much that we don't go after because it's not possible. An example that I think of sometimes is you are you're applying for a job. And if you have a belief that you're not good enough and you don't get the job, your resilience becomes so low. Mm. It's like, well, there we go. Nothing ever works. Great. And then it might take a month for you to muster the strength to apply for another job. Where in contrast, if you have a belief, I'm good enough, things work for me. And if things don't work out the first time, it's not a big deal because I can keep trying. If you don't have a fear of mistakes and failure, if you don't believe that you're unworthy and you don't get the job, it's like, well, I didn't get that one. What else is there? Your resilience is so much higher and you're quick, right? You're quick to move. You're likely to apply for 20 jobs because it doesn't take energy. There's so much in the world that depletes our energy, not because of the thing, but because of our relationship to the thing. And so if applying for a job is me filleting myself out into the world, that's going to take a lot of energy. Where if me applying for jobs, there's just opportunities for me to look at different companies. Well, no big deal. I can apply for 30 jobs. Who cares? It, it's no, you know, it's nothing off my back. Like that's easy. And so mindset is the difference between our resilience and it's the difference between what we feel capable of going after because of how it impacts us. Do you think as we age, as sometimes you know, in multiple different areas of life, as an example, we talked about yesterday, the idea of like PTSD with my bike. Yeah. I'm like, I definitely have PTSD on my bike right now. Mm-hmm. And like, eventually, you know, as people age, you start accumulating these little like, mm, these little, you know, uh, hacks, right? Like, yeah. oh, that one hurt a little bit. Oh, that one hurt a little bit. Eventually you start kind of limiting what you do. You like, kind of, you start yeah. restricting yourself a little bit because you start creating these these stories in your mind of like, Oh, I, did, I applied for that job. I didn't get it. Oh, it's okay. I'll try another one. Yeah. Oh, I applied for that job. Oh, I didn't get it. I'll apply for And eventually it starts just beating people into submission of like, into this really narrow box of like, I'm just going to stay in this really restricted lane. Yeah. And I'm not going to venture out there because that world hurts. Right. So I'm going to stay in this lane. Do you think that's why uh, many people as they age tend to become cynical, angry, right. limited, yeah. uh, you know, afraid to kind of venture into the world? Yeah, I look at it a little bit differently. The way that I look at it is I look that we collect data points. So we already have a belief and then the number of data points is what weighs us down. So again, if you have a belief that failing is a part of life, the failures don't weigh on you. They're just a part of it. Where if you have a belief that if I make a mistake, it means I'm a failure, every mistake becomes heavier and heavier and heavier. So the belief systems that we have going into the world determine how we interpret those data points and and where the data points lie. And so I think what happens over time is the heaviness of the beliefs really starts to weigh on us, but it's not it's not life, right? It's not that life weighs on us. It's living with a belief. So living with a belief is hard. Living is not hard. Living with beliefs can be really, really hard. Mm -hmm. And the particular beliefs that you have determine what is hard for you, right? So, I I mean, there's two pieces. One, it determines how we interpret things, but it also determines what we create, Mm -hmm. right? So, 
looking at our life can be painful because it's evidence of what we created, which is once again, the heaviness of the beliefs. So if I never went after something because of a deservingness belief, then not only do I struggle with feeling undeserving my whole life, I look at my life and I'm like, I've accomplished nothing. Look at how little I've done. Like what a loser I am. Now I'm telling stories about the life I've created where when we're free to create, we look at our life and we're like, yeah, like I built this. Of course I built this life. Like this is in alignment with my values. So we can look at our life. And if our life is in alignment with our values, it's typically because we feel free to build that. And when our life is not in alignment with our values, it's because we're blocked from building what we want. Again, which is really heavy. And the other thing, which is kind of a a sidebar, I think a lot of what happens when we get older, we very often have a, a belief that we're powerless. It's a very common belief. And where it comes from is during those first seven years when you're forming your beliefs, you're actually not in charge right? Your survival depends upon somebody else. And we're not taught as parents how to empower our children, right? We go to school, we learn the 12th president of the United States and a you know physics equation, whatever right. country you're from, right? You learn some information, but you don't learn how your brain works and you don't learn about early childhood development and you don't learn how we process emotion and you don't learn how to resolve conflict and have difficult conversations. You don't learn any of that. You're not in school. I wish. You're in charge. I wish. Oh, my God. I officially nominate you, Brett. You are in charge. Thank you, Ben. I appreciate that. Um, so no pressure. Totally. I would love to change the school curriculum. And so what happens is, you know, that's our worldview. And then we have kids. And often we do one of two things in, in kind of a combination. We do exactly what our parents do or we did the opposite. Mm. And so we, we kind of swing, you know, back and forth. This is what most parents do. And so as a kid... Your parents have their way of doing things, and that's what determines your idea that there's a right and a wrong way to do things because you do your parents' way. Your way is not important. You want to paint on the walls. You want to throw spaghetti on the floor. You don't want to go to bed when it's time to go to bed. You want to take your diaper, and you want to throw it on the ground. You don't want to wear it, right? And so because of that, there's this conflict. Parents need to get things done. Well, you have to go to school, and you have to eat your vegetables, and you have to do these things, and kids who have their ideas. Well, I want to dance and sing and play. These are all things I want to do. And for a parent, they're like, that's great, but that doesn't actually align with what needs to happen. And so you're constantly being steered and directed. And as a result, you end up feeling powerless. What I want doesn't matter. And it's up to somebody else to tell me how the world is going to be and how my world is going to look. This powerlessness is something that we typically are pretty well able to navigate in our lives, right? We find ways of having power. I feel like I'm powerless, but the way to have power is to be in charge. The way to have power is to be free. The way to have power is to have a lot of money. The way to have power is to be attractive. And as long as we can do those things, we don't have to deal with this underlying feeling of powerlessness that we carry around with us. In our old age, those coping strategies typically start to crumble. We're no longer able to do those things. And then as our bodies age, we are reminded of that feeling of powerlessness. So it's not that it creates it, it triggers it. And when that feeling is triggered, it can be very overwhelming. And powerlessness is most of the time underneath anger. So so often anger and powerlessness are, are correlated, right? We feel powerless. Anger gives us a surge of power. And so it is our way of coping with this powerlessness. And so in old age, so often that powerlessness is triggered and it can be very overwhelming for somebody who hasn't had to deal with it their whole life to now all of a sudden process this powerlessness at kind of end of life. I can see that being very frustrating. So throw me some information here on what does it look like for a parent to not 
make their child feel powerless? Yeah. So there's a couple different things that I think are really important. One of my favorites is distinguishing between your way and the right way. Being very clear with your children that your way isn't the right way. It is just the way that you do things in that family. Mm. So instead of saying, because once you believe that there's a right way and a wrong way of to do things, you go through your whole life yep. looking for the right way, right? So much of anxiety is caused by looking for the right way of doing things and fearing that you're doing it wrong. Mm -hmm. When you get that, you know, if you have a two-parent household, let's say you have a mom and a dad, and the mother has her way and the father has his way and you have your way. And you can have a conversation about that, right? So you can talk to your kids about their way, help them cultivate their way, be aware of their way. And at times say, okay, in this case, there's the spaciousness where we can do things your way. And when their way is not the way, right? When you are going to do things your way to be able to communicate that their way is valid and important, but because of X, Y, and Z reason, you're going to do things your way, right? That playing on the on the floor would be so fun right now and that their way is so valid and important and there's somewhere to be. And so in this particular case, you're going to do it mom's way or you're going to do it dad's way. So really opening a dialogue about your child's way, you know, however many children that they each have their own way, you have your way and it's not about the right way or the wrong way. And I think that that is just invaluable. I think that's such a huge gift. So I think that's one way to empower your children. And I think another way is really coming from a place of curiosity about their emotions, that very often children's emotions can be inconvenient, <laughs> right? But spending time helping them to understand how they're feeling, because what often happens in life, one of the reasons why we're disempowered is we don't actually know what's going on in our head. And so we feel disempowered because these emotions happen or these choices happen and we don't understand why. So you can teach a child to learn to listen to themselves. I think one of the things that is missing most from humans is self-trust. And self-trust often comes from the fact that we don't understand why we're doing so we, why we're doing what we're doing. We say we're going to do something and we don't do it. And that erodes our self-trust. What we don't understand is there's a reason why we're not doing it. It's not that we can't trust ourselves. It's just a blind spot. And if you can help a child in their early kind of developmental ages to understand their thought processes and understand their emotions, the way that they relate to their own mind later in life changes and it really helps them to develop self-trust. How many adults do you know that are in tune with their own emotions? Like I, like it's, it's very limited, right? Yeah. So like I always joke about, you know, parents who get mad at kids for being emotional. It's like, you're an adult. You have no idea why you're emotional and you have words for it. They don't even have words for it most yeah. of the time. And you're like, reprimanding them for getting emotional like just accept it and love it and maybe right. help them through it yeah it's funny but so what would be our process as an adult um again for for a child i think it's relatively maybe it's not simple but yeah like just accept it right and happening as an adult who, who feels like they know they have emotions or maybe they've taught to like you know hide them or, or yeah. beat them down or they just are unaware of what that looks like what what do you have a i think we talked about this a little bit yesterday what's your process so um, I want to answer one thing that you said, and then I want to go into that, which is that if there's a if you're not doing something that you say you want to do or are going to do, it is not because you lack discipline. It's not because you're lazy and it's not because there's something wrong with you. There is a reason. And I cannot emphasize this enough. So much of our shame, so much of our feelings of insecurity or 
you know, the expression of kind of our, our worth over life is because we look back at these data points and we're like, well, I said I was going to gain muscle or lose weight or do whatever. And I didn't do it. And it's because I'm not disciplined and I'm lazy and I'm a piece of shit. And that is one way to look at it. And yes, that is a way to look at it. And if you look under the hood, there is a reason why. If you believe that your worth and value is tied to achieving and you want to spend an hour at the gym and that goes against a survival mechanism that's like, oh, no, you can't afford to spend an hour at the gym. You need to be achieving because if you don't achieve, you're worthless. You're not going to go to the gym. And it's not because you're undisciplined and lazy. It's because your survival instinct is telling you that you need to be at the office. Right. So if you want to spend more time with your family and you're like, OK, I want to be a good husband or I, I want to be a good wife, I want to spend more time with my family. You might want to spend more time with your family. But if there's a part of your brain that, again, believes your worth and value is tied to working hard, you will create hard work whether or not you need the money. Right. If you have five hundred million dollars in the bank and you are sitting at the office and you believe that working hard is what makes you worthy, you are not going to go home. And it's not because you're lazy and it's not because you're undisciplined and it's not because you're a piece of shit. It's because your safety in your mind is predicated upon being at the office. So I just want to make that really, really clear for everyone. Well, you can't you can't start that conversation and not continue to that. <laughs> I know you wanted to answer a whole bunch of other stuff, but that 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 is the the predicament of everyone, right? It's like I think, yeah, like it's it's as you originally spoke about weeks ago with with me it was the lack of congruency or harmony between the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala. You know what to do. You're not doing it. There, mm. you have to get these two things in alignment, right? And that's a safety conversation. Yeah. Keep it coming, Brett. Keep it coming. Keep it coming. Right. I want to understand because yeah. I work with hundreds, if not thousands of people who are like, you know, and you get 10%, I would say, and that's a guess, but I'd say 10% of people who set a goal, accomplish a goal. They're like, yep, I got it. No matter what, I do it. And everyone else yeah. wavers. Some people yeah. like move forward and three steps forward, two steps back. And some people right. don't make any forward progress. So they're yes. like, I just, you know, I can't. Yep. So I want to understand, and I'm sure the audience wants to understand yeah, I don't even want to direct you on that. Where yep. would you go with that? Yeah. So a couple things that are really important here. The first one is your brain is not designed to keep you happy. Your brain is designed to keep you safe. So I want you to think about your brain as having a singular mission, which is safety. You develop your sense of safety during your first seven years, right? So you're trying to, you're new in town, right? You're new to this place. You have no idea what's going on. So you're trying to figure out what's safe. Because your survival does not depend upon yourself, because your survival depends upon your parents, what creates harmony in your family is what feels safe, right? So if my survival depends upon you, having harmony with you is the thing that makes me feel safe. Having disharmony with you makes me feel unsafe. Why? What if you abandon me and I die, right? That's how the brain works. So we think that our sense of safety has to do with danger, our sense of safety has nothing to do with danger. Our sense of safety has to do with what created harmony in our family from zero to seven. So if conflict created disharmony from zero to seven, now I'm 30, 40, 50, 90 years old, conflict creates fear. Because my brain is a pattern recognition engine, right? It, it I call it pattern matching. But what it does is it looks at something. If your brain wants to be safe, it's going to look and say, what have I seen in the past that is similar to this? And what can I predict based off of what I saw? So the environment that we have in zero to seven, we then project onto our present reality for the rest of our life. And the things that created disharmony from zero to seven trigger the 
the safety mechanism in our brain and then it creates fear not because you're in danger but because your brain thinks you're in danger because it created disharmony in your family from zero to seven so this is kind of the first foundation that again could not be more important if you look at the places in your life where you're blocked one way to look at it is it's that i'm weak there or again i'm undisciplined and lazy or i'm just not capable or I don't have the skills. And another way to look at it is the places in your life where you have resistance or the things that cause fear because they created disharmony in your family from zero to seven. So another kind of important piece of this puzzle is if being well-liked or being smart or achieving created harmony, you then link that to safety. So now being liked is not just about having a connection. Hey, I'm so glad you like me. I like you too. Isn't that nice? That's very different from I need you to like me to be safe. So now this thing that created a feeling of safety as a child is now running my life. Because if my goal is to be safe, being liked is not about connection. Being liked is about safety. Achieving is not about expressing your genius zone. It's about being safe, right? People pleasing, right? Whatever those patterns are, are all about safety. So from this perspective, safety is at the bottom of everything, so the bottom, bottom of everything, right? So much of what we say yes to and what we say no to. If making a mistake or failing created disharmony in my family, what's wrong with you, right? If I got a reaction from a parent, a critical parent that made me feel like if I made a mistake, I was unworthy, making a mistake and failing will trigger a feeling of unsafe in my brain. So now I'm trying to be innovative and creative in my company but I can't make mistakes and fail. I know logically, again, prefrontal cortex, make mistakes and fail. It's the way to do it, right? Be innovative. But if my amygdala is like, oh, hell no, you can't make mistakes and fail. It makes you unworthy. That's not safe. I'm not going to do it, right? So the things that we resist in our life are, are not about how strong we are, how capable we are. It's about what feels safe and unsafe. We don't do things for the most part that feel unsafe or if we do, it takes a lot of willpower. So this comes back then to the process of see what you're taking off the table, see what you, th- he's like, oh, I can't, I'm not capable of that. I can't do that. I can't do that. And this will kind of give you, leave, leave you the breadcrumbs to determine yeah. where these challenges arise or these, these holes are. Yeah. And another tool, this I think is actually really useful for everyone listening. When you start to become aware of the things in your life that are unsafe for you, right? Because again, it's, it's all about safety we have an ability to kind of reactivate our prefrontal cortex. And one way of doing that is to label the things that create fear. So I, I want to come back to fear, whether it is mild nervousness or abject terror, right? It's the same trigger in our brain. It's a perceived threat to our survival. So when we have fear that's created, it's because our brain is like, oh, there's a chance that we're not safe. It's a perceived threat to our survival. One thing that you can do to create, I I would call it an empowered mindset, is to label the things that create fear as uncomfortable. Because uncomfortable, we can manage. If we feel unsafe, we get small, right? We throw our hands in the air. It's like we want to cower in the corner. If something is unsafe, it's really hard to overcome. In the face of unsafety, it's like, what what are you really going to do? You might fight, but that's really it. And so if you, instead of calling it unsafe, call it uncomfortable, you re-engage your prefrontal cortex. So if I believe that something is unsafe, again, I'm, I'm likely to push it away. But if I'm like, oh, wait, I'm, I'm feeling fear. If you notice any level of fear, be like, oh, I'm feeling fear. My brain thinks I'm unsafe. I'm not unsafe. I'm uncomfortable. Well, if you're uncomfortable, now you can start problem solving. I've been uncomfortable before. I've been uncomfortable more times than I can count in my life. And hey, 
here I am. I was able to problem solve. I was able to manage. Discomfort is a completely different mindset. And so by labeling, when you get nervous, just notice it. Anytime there's a fear, there's a resistance. If there's a resistance, you can you can start to look, is there fear here? Am I afraid of this? Am I avoiding it because I'm afraid of it? You're saying, yeah, I, I am a little bit nervous about it. Great. No problem. Say, oh, my brain thinks I'm unsafe right now. Am I actually unsafe? No. What am I? I'm uncomfortable. The word uncomfortable is one of the most empowering words from my perspective in the entire language. I am uncomfortable. Oh, I'm just uncomfortable. I've been uncomfortable before. What do I want to do? Now we go back into problem solving. This feels like maybe the most important information that every parent in the world just needs to hear. Like if it just comes down to safety, it's such an easy problem to solve for. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I can just make you feel safe or I can just tell you that, hey, I'm here for you. You're safe. Mm-hmm. Express what you feel. Move through it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, logically, this should be handed to everyone like the parenting playbook. Like, yeah. Yeah, it's so interesting that I've never heard anybody explain it that way where the only thing a child needs from zero to seven is like, I want to feel safe. And if I can feel safe, then I can be free to express. I can be free to be me. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'm missing the parenting books that are expressing this stuff. And I haven't read them all for sure, but yeah. that's so interesting, so powerful. And yeah, I think you're you're responsible. I'm, I'm officially making you in charge of writing the parenting book <laughs> about parent safety. I nominate you, Britt. You're welcome. Thank you. Yeah, no pressure. Get it done in the next six months or I'm going to be beating down your door. Great. Good to know. <laughs> I'm going to hear a knock. I'm going to be like, honey, someone's at the door. Let me stand there looking at my watch. That's like six months. Yeah. <laughs> well, gosh, it's just, it feels so um, relevant in our society right now because, you know, fear is definitely being inculcated into the minds of the masses. And mm-hmm. if, you know, I wonder how much influence it would have to have a child from zero to seven feel safe to express to be mm-hmm. to play to just mm-hmm. like be a child and how much that would influence the trajectory of the world as we get older and i wonder you know as a parent they might not feel safe so how right. can they offer safety to their right. their you know little toddler and yeah like if you're watching the news every day and and, and you're just like being inculcated with mm. fear, yeah, you're going to bring that home to your kids and then your kids are going to grow up with so much fear and uncertainty and they're going to find the little pocket of the world that makes them feel safe or welcome right. or belong, feel like they belong. And that's just creating so much uh, interesting di- disharmony in the world right now. Yeah. There's a quote that I love so much. It's, we don't see things as they are. We see them as we are. Mm-hmm. And I just think that there's so much wisdom and truth in that. And the way that we feel inside is what we project onto the world around us. And so it makes sense that if we're feeling unsafe and then we go watch the news, it's just evidence. It's just an affirmation. It's see, right? See? And so being aware of, I think of it as mirrors, that we live in a world of mirrors. Everyone shows us, everything shows us how we feel, right? And so different people in different environments are going to remind us of who we believe ourselves to be. And so being aware of what your mirrors are is, I think, really profound. That if I know that I have fear inside of me, is that what I want mirrored? Do I want to be looking at external fear that reminds me I have internal fear? Or do I want to mirror a different part of me, right? Like, do I want to lean into inspiration? Well, if I look at inspiring things, it's not that those things are creating the inspiration inside of me. They're reminding me of the inspiration inside of me. So particular activating system again. Right. Yeah. And I, and what I love so much about this is it's, it's really empowering to consider what do I want mirrored? 
what are the parts of me that I want to be brought out and who are the people I need to be around or what do I need to consume to be reminded of these parts of myself and to generate a relationship with these qualities of mine. And I mean, this is something that I think about that I, I really value the intellectual pursuit. I really value feeling inspired. I really value awe. And so where are the places I need to go or the things I need to do or the meditations I need to have in order to nurture those experiences, those feelings, those qualities within myself so that they're more likely to come out in my life. And I think that's part of what we talked about earlier, right? There's who you are and who you want to become, right? There's the the existence of who I want to become. And then there's the things I want to cultivate. And so it's utilizing both of those concepts that one, they're already inside of me. So I just need to tap into them. I don't need to create them. I need to tap into them. And then what can I continue to cultivate and nurture from that space? It's like noticing them, creating a habit. So it's curious about your suggestions or what your current daily practices are. Is it like journaling? Is it curating an environment that that reminds you of those things? Like it sounds like an enriched environment. You're like, oh yeah, if this thing makes me feel this way, I want to bring that out more mm-hmm. in me. A, a piece of art or, you know, yeah. a book. Yeah. Things that have carried emotions with you yeah. and curating that in your environment so you can just curate who you are and how you show up in the world. Yeah. So I think there's there's kind of two, str- coming back to the idea of two strings, there's two strings you can pull. There's the internal and the external. Mm-hmm. So everything already exists inside of us and everything already exists out in the world. And so it's finding the places where that can be triggered internally and externally. So from an internal perspective, one thing that I think is really, really powerful is feeling state meditations. So if there's a particular feeling that you want to feel into, it might be gratitude, it might be love, it might be creativity, it might be magic, right? Whatever that is, it might be strength, it might be courage, it might be power, and you might do five minutes, right? It doesn't need to be an hour and a half. You spend five minutes every day and you just meditate on that feeling. Bring the feeling palpably. Palpable, so you bring it up. And for some people, it's really helpful to start with a memory of a time when you felt it so that you can anchor into it. Over time, you don't need a memory. It's just accessible. It might be something that's already accessible. So you might meditate on a memory for five minutes and kind of see where it takes you, or it might be a dream or a vision. Um, And at some point, you get to a place where you really can just tap into the feeling really easily. And so it's almost like they're right on the surface. It's the best. Right? So there's the internal, and then there's also the external. So start to ask yourself, what are the things that trigger those feelings? And then surround yourself with them. So that might be you know, a YouTube channel that you follow or someone you follow on Instagram who's very inspirational or who reminds you of courage. There might be a particular quote that you really love. And so you go on Amazon and you, you know, get a picture and you put it in a picture frame for $7 and you put it on your wall because that quote really makes you feel how it helps you tap into that feeling, right? It might be certain relationships or other daily practices. So I would say there's two to focus on, the internal and the external. And I think that those two have a relationship one of the things that I kind of think about within my own self is that my internal and my external are kind of this infinity loop, right? That my internal impacts my external, my external impacts my internal. And so being aware of the power of both of those, I think is really important because I always want to be cultivating my internal so that I can project that on my external because there's going to be times you need your external to impact you. When you're feeling low, you need a world that reminds you of who you are. And so as I grow internally, I want to make sure that I'm externalizing that because I need to I need my world to remind me of who I am and to inspire me into who I want to become because just asking yourself to do it, if you do all this internal work and you don't externalize it, 
you are asking a lot of yourself because when you're having a hard time, you need to cultivate it from the inside. And I think that's a big ask. So I think externalizing your growth into the world is a really great way to kind of protect yourself in your harder times to have the world remind you of who you are. All right. So psychoanalyze this one, Britt. Okay. I was so conscious of avoiding external motivation through my entire life because, and we talked about this yesterday. Yeah. Because I didn't want to be dependent on it. Yeah. It's like if I knew that my environment triggered me feeling a certain way, I needed that environment to to be at my best. So mm-hmm. I wouldn't allow myself to curate my environment in any way that influenced my state, yes. positive or negative. Yeah. So I always wanted to be dependent on my internal motivation. And I don't think it's right or wrong, just observing my behaviors even you know, into my adult life, I'd always be aware of like there's only a very small number of things mm-hmm. that I wanted to allow to influence me because I, you know, looking back on it, I almost felt like it had a power over me. Mm-hmm. And if I didn't have that thing, I felt like I was weaker. Mm-hmm. Psychoanalyze that one. Yeah. Where's that? Is that the dependency thing coming back? Like the reliability thing coming back? Like so. So there's there's a couple of things here. That to me is coming from a place of fighting powerlessness because I'm powerlessness the way to be powerful is to not be impacted by anything yeah right so it's coming from powerlessness you feel powerful by not being impacted by anything but you're still letting the powerlessness drive you sure right so when you get I'm actually not powerless I'm powerful now I'm in choice so it's not that you stop building the internal it's not that you completely outsource and you're like all right world motivate me right but you're in choice so you say I know that I have the power to internally motivate I can rely on that for the rest of my life. I have that as a tool in my toolkit that I am so grateful for. Now I'm going to play with allowing the world to move me, allowing the world to inspire me. Now it's a semi-permeable membrane, right? You don't let it all in. If someone is, you know, having a bad day, you don't say, well, the world impacts me. Now I'm going to have a bad day too. So you're in choice. And I think this is, I'm I'm actually really glad you brought this up because there's, I think, a really important kind of nugget in here, which is when there's something that serves you, Growth is not about throwing it away. It's about being in choice. It's saying I can rely on this anytime I want, but what does it feel like to play with things outside of that? So I know that I can motivate myself at any point and I'm, I'm going to continue to nurture and cultivate that. If I feel like I'm getting too impacted by the world, go spend a day with, you know, go spend a day in a float tank where there's no external you know, stimulus and have a conversation with yourself. Cultivate that internal motivation. Check in. Do whatever you need to do to keep that. But don't be, but don't stop there, right? Because we're so limited because that's all we get to play with. Infinite possibility is saying, what would it feel like to play with the experience of being moved or motivated by the external world? And the idea is not that the external world has power over you. It's a conversation, right? That if I'm thinking on my own, I have access to my own thoughts. But what's possible in co-creation, right? That you might say something that sparks an idea that I never would have been able to spark on my own. And now I have access to everything that that idea opens up, right? So it's it's about expansion. It's not about replacing. It's just about opening up more possibilities. So do you know why I did it? It's, it's funny because it's an exact reflection of my relationships. It's, I know that I can curate the ups, but I was trying to avoid the downs. Yeah, 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 yeah. I totally get that. Yeah, because like I know I can use all those things outside of me to like get up. But I know on the back side of that, mm-hmm. the what goes up must come down. Yeah. So is it, I, think, I think just thinking through it as you're speaking is like, yeah, this is an attempt to avoid the downs. Yeah. And I think I was telling you recently, maybe I wasn't telling you, but I do that in relationships too. Like yeah. I, I intentionally try to, because I know I'm so um, 
emotional on the downs. Yeah. I'm like, not going there. See you later. Keep moving. Yeah. <laughs> I, I avoid those. Yeah. I think there's two really important things in here. One of them is, I think it, instead of looking at it as up and down, you can look at it as an infinite exploration, right? So it's not that I'm going up and down. It's that there's just access to all of these different ways of thinking and feeling and experiencing. And I think thinking of it as highs and lows can actually lead to the experience of highs and lows rather than looking at it kind of on this flat surface that you're walking toward infinity in every direction, right? And so from that perspective, I think it can lighten it a little bit that it's not highs and lows, right? Highs and lows feel like an emotional roller coaster versus I'm leaning into different experiences and having curiosity about what that experience opens up and what becomes possible within those different contexts. So I think that's one thing. The other thing is within the context of relationships and this idea of being really impacted by others, often the source of that is feeling responsible for people and or rejecting feeling responsible for people, right? Often we reject feeling responsible for people because we feel responsible for people and we don't want to. Going back to the idea of the semi-permeable membrane, right? If you if you get that everyone is sovereign and everyone is responsible for their own experience, if you want to make it spiritual, you can say people come to this planet to have an experience and to go through whatever they go through in this life. From a human perspective, it's that people are accountable. If you don't feel responsible for people, you have a very different relationship to the idea of lows. Because what's happening is you are observing someone having an experience and empathy allows you not to feel what they're feeling, but to tap into your own experience and life and to remember what that feels like. And from a place of shared connection saying, I know what that feels like, you're not going into their experience. It's not that you're letting them drag you down. It's that you're just tapping into, I know what that feels like, and I don't need to go so deep into my own experience that I get lost in it, right? But it's not that someone's dragging you down. You're not feeling into their feeling. I think it's actually not not productive. And I know for me, I'm incredibly empathic. I was always able to feel people's feelings. I was a bleeding heart. I didn't want anyone to suffer. And so someone would hurt, and it was like I would jump in with them. And then I was drowning in their pool and I wasn't very much use and it was incredibly painful and it it didn't serve me. And what I've learned over time is that because I'm not responsible for that person, I can sit next to them, right? I'm not diving in with them. I can sit next to them and just say, I know what that feels like. Do I know the details? No. Have I been through exactly what you're going through? No, but it's not the details you're struggling with. Details are arbitrary. It's the feelings and feelings are universal. I know what that feeling feels like. And from a place of memory, not from a place of diving, from a place of memory, I get that. And I can just sit and hold that space with you. It's a completely different experience. So if that's what I'm doing, now go back to relationships. It's not about highs and lows. They're not dragging you, right? Even if they're, even if things are magical, you're not being, being dragged in by them. You're remembering something that already exists within you. The highs already exist. With you. They're not creating the high. They're reminding you. And then you can choose where you go based off of your kind of inventory of experiences. All right. So I'm looking at my guys right now sitting there in the audience thinking this. It's like, why do I need emotions? Mm, yeah. Can I just exist without them? Like, I think so. Oh, Ben, know. I get this one. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I know I'm speaking for a huge percentage of the audience right now are liking this is a woman, she likes emotions. Women do the emotional thing. Guys are like, yeah. those are so inefficient. 
I don't need those at all. I can yeah. exist in life without those things. Screw emotions. I'm gonna have. I'm gonna work toward objective progress. Like, yeah. So that's. Yeah. I'm looking at you. I'm looking you in yeah. the eye. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> See you. So, so look, speaking to the male audience, yeah. maybe female audience. I don't want to. No, I mean you're but. you're speaking to me. <laughs> totally. I hated them. I was like emotions. I do so well with emotions. So like people that bring them into my life, I'm like, I just don't need those. Yeah. You hang on to those. Yeah, <laughs> they're good for you. You know, I, I I I'm actually I'm I'm so with you on this one. I thought emotions were a liability. I thought they were a waste of energy. I thought they were stupid. I thought they made me weak and pathetic. Like I was very anti-emotion. I don't think that the I'm going to change the question a little bit. I'm going to change the paradigm. I don't think it's that you need or don't need emotions, right? You have them. So the question is, what do you want to do with them? I can live without them. So you have them underneath the surface. Whether or not you're expressing them, they're still existing inside of you and they're still running your behavior. So I, I want to change the paradigm. It's not, do I need them or not need them? It's not, are they useful or useless? Neither of those paradigms exist. They sound really good. So we'll sweep them under the rug. Right, but they're not real. So <laughs> it's not about feeling feelings. I, I, I'm actually, I'm so glad you asked this question because it's not about feeling feelings. Like I'm not, it's not about like go cry or go scream. Like, yeah, you want to go there, go there. Like th- there, that is a great, it is a great exploration, but like that is not what this is about. It's not about feeling your feelings. It's being aware of the underlying drivers in your life. And so I would almost say it's not about emotion. Got it. It's, it a, it's, about, it's about the drivers. Yeah. And so, and, and I think safety again is, is an important, is an important place to start. Mm-hmm. Fear is an emotion, but it's not about the fear. It's about what you take off the table and what is on the table. Right. And so if the goal is to have more things on the table, you have to address fear. Right. right? And so by addressing fear, you get to put things back on the table. There's a lot of people who are like, yeah, but I can willpower. If you look at functional MRI data, the part of your brain that houses willpower is about 5% of your brain power. Yeah. So even if you have more willpower than anyone has ever had in the history of the world, you might be at 7%. You are going to lose. Yeah. You're going to lose. It's true. Right? So willpower is not enough. And so it's not about feeling emotions. It's about understanding your blocks. And we can go in more into emotions, right? understanding that again anger has a a strong relationship to powerlessness and sometimes justice but a lot of the time powerlessness so understanding your relationship to power and powerlessness is valuable it doesn't mean you need to feel your feelings but just understanding the role that it plays in your life and then within your relationships understanding that you're not responsible for a person if empathy is a value for you empathy is is a foundation of connection so hopefully, you know, it's a value. It doesn't have to be if you want meaningful connection. Empathy is an important piece of that. And the ability to tap into your own emotions is very helpful for that. But you don't need empathy to have, I think, a great life. And and for those of you on your second mountain, you have probably already learned that success doesn't make you happy. I, I mean, I know we share a lot of the same clients. I can't tell you the number of people who have had you know, the $5 billion business. And then they're like, this is all bullshit. What right? well, it's, and, it, and it's really hard. And, and I think this is a kind of weird thing to say out loud, but I think that the ultra wealthy in a lot of ways are really, I can't believe I'm saying this on a podcast, but a really underserved population because they very often come from nothing. They hold so much pain and so much inadequacy. Then they're promised that when they build the X billion dollar business, that they're that that's going to go away and then they're still terrified of losing everything they still are so afraid of not having money they still feel inadequate 
and then everyone in the world looks at them and they're like, you have all the money. You don't deserve to feel problems, right? Right. You don't deserve to feel what. And so it can be so hard because people look at them like they're supposed to have it all figured out and they're supposed to be happy and they're still miserable. And what that comes from is the belief that the success makes you happy, not learning to create meaningful relationships, which again are predicated upon empathy in a lot of ways, which do require emotions. But again, that's that's kind of a second mountain conversation more than you need to go learn how to feel your feelings. Yeah. And as a person who's supposed to have it all together, it's very hard to to step back and be vulnerable right. enough to like share like, hey, I'm really, really messed up. Right. And and as you say, people are like, you're not allowed to feel You're not that. allowed to feel that way. You have yeah. it all. Yeah. And I, I just want to share this because I, I think it's important just from like a really personal perspective that I learned at a really young age how to be impressive and and I learned how to be impressive in a way that wasn't driven by ego. This is like a very kind of like niche skill set that I learned how to be useful to people. I learned how to have insight that made people see themselves differently. So it's one thing to be impressive because of who you are. It's another thing to be impressive because of how you make someone feel about themselves. Mm-hmm. And so I learned to be really authentic and to be exactly who people wanted me to be. And so I created this incredible life filled with people who loved and adored me because of who I was to them, or my story at least was because it was who I was to them. And so I had all of this meaningful connection and I had so many people who loved and valued me and I had built so much, but because my worth felt tied to being who I thought people Mm -hmm. wanted me to be. I didn't know how to exist on my own. And I, right. And and almost to the point where I felt like who I was, like my existence was about who I was to other people. Mm -hmm. So if there was no one around, I was like, I didn't even know who I was because my whole value was who I could be to other people. And, 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 and breaking that was terrifying. It was like, I felt like if I was for me, like if I just existed on my own, it was like everything I'd built would shatter because I was so convinced that people only loved me because of who I was to them. And as I started trying to crack it, I mean, it it was like I almost couldn't breathe. Like I was so scared that it was all going to break. And I mean, I'll say on on a positive note that the feedback I got was that nothing changed, that people didn't love me just because I was helpful and insightful. You know, people love me because of who I was. But I think it's just really important, you know, for people to remember that whatever you've built, the reason why you think people like you, that a lot of the time it's in our heads and people like you because of who you are, not because of the thing that you think. And so starting to break that, I think is really important. You know, I, it came up because of what we were talking about, but I just thought, just kind of felt like an important piece. It feels so relevant to me because as I said, like, you know, for the last 15 years or longer now, 20 20 plus years, I'd say people have known me as the muscle building guy. Yeah. And it's such a deep entrenched part of my identity. Like right. people watch this. Right. It's like, hey, you're, you're the guy who teaches, you're the best in the world at teaching muscle building. But I'm like, that's not what I, who I am. Like yeah. it's what I do. Yeah. But it's not who I am. And it's interesting to like separate my identity and all this value and, and external worth and validation that yeah. comes from you're the best at that. Yeah. But I'm like, I don't know, it's such a small part of who I am, as I said, yeah. you know, yesterday, this morning. It's such a fragment of who I am and what I contribute, but it's hard to let that go knowing that there's like this huge segment of the world that's like, you're this guy to me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah I, don't, I don't even know how to navigate it. I'm just trying to figure it out. I don't think my worth is necessarily tied to it, but maybe it is, but uh, yeah, it's a very interesting world to navigate, yeah. letting go something that 
defined you for a very long time. Yeah. And gave me self-worth on this when I was on this upward trajectory. Right. But I'm like, yeah, I don't know that I want that. Yeah. And I, I, I mean, I feel like I'm, I'm, I've been going through something very similar where it's like I was known as like the belief person. It's like anyone in the world, like you want to eliminate your beliefs. Like she's the, like, she's the greatest, she's the greatest, she's the best. And it's like, you know, I have this reputation in my world of like what I can do. And yeah, like I, I love that. And it, and it is a huge part of my identity. And it, I mean, it's my passion. It's my gift to the world. It's very clearly to me why I'm on this planet is to do this work. And one, my relationship to the work has evolved dramatically. What I did 20 years ago is very different than what I do now. And what I did 20 years ago is integrated into my heart and my soul and my intellect and my being, but it's different. And, you know, I just, I think it's so interesting what you, you know, what you said and about like having this identity and expanding. And I I think part of it is coming back to infinite possibility that yes, like that is who I am. And from a context of infinite possibility, what other parts of myself do I want to express? And are there particular places I want to express that? Is it on my social media channels? Is it in my live events? Is it with my clients? Is it you know, publicly, is it by myself? Like, what what else do I want to express out in the world? And I think that that infinite possibility frame is really helpful to start to look at what do I want to cultivate in myself? And, and then how do I want to express that? And what are some of the modalities or vehicles that I want to express that to the world? You said something really big there and I got to like poke. You said, this is why I'm on this planet. And I don't think there's very many people in the world who can, who would say that with such confidence and know that. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious if you know that or if that's just like, yeah, I think, because that's a really, really deep introspective, yeah. you know, place to, to exist from yeah. and to be confident and knowing like, yeah, like I could speculate, like I'm, I'm pretty good at some stuff and I really like a lot of stuff and, and the intersection of those things, that may be some purpose why I'm here. But yeah, I want you to explore that with yeah. me. Yeah, I have no question. I have absolutely no question. That's why I'm on this planet. So I'll give you a couple, kind of pull on a couple strings. One of them is I'm four years old. I'm six years old. And it's like, I can see the matrix. I can see people's beliefs. Mm -hmm. And I remember being in middle school and being like, I have to turn this off. Like, I can't, I can't be like eight and like be hanging out with my friends and like seeing their survival strategy beliefs. Like that's not functional. So I learned to turn it off and I am able to, turn it on when it when it's useful when I'm in the right context and then to just live my life but the fact that at such a young age like that was so natural like I I can see that it has always been with me I've obviously sharpened the skill you know within my career and within my life but it's just always been in me that's number one and then you pair that with the fact that I have felt in my life an immense amount of pain we talked about this earlier but knowing that I knew my beliefs and not being able to like get rid of them was excruciating. I I grew up in a family where I learned that your beliefs determine your life. And so imagine you're eight years old and you have the belief I'm worthless. I'm a piece of shit. No one's going to love me the way that I am. Like all of those types of beliefs. And I'm like, if these beliefs are going to determine my life, I'm screwed. So I was like ravenous and trying to figure out how to get rid of these beliefs. And I couldn't. And there was a powerlessness and a hopelessness and also with the hopelessness, an obsessive drive that drive and determination has served me. And I'm very, very grateful for it. So it wasn't I didn't it wasn't expressed as a hopelessness, right? It wasn't a real hopelessness. Like it was an obsession to stay out of the hopelessness. It was like I knew that the hopelessness existed. And so I swung to the other side, this determination. So there's all of these kind of pieces of the puzzle. But for me, I just never wanted anyone to feel how I felt. 
and and that that is so in my heart. I never want anyone That's, to feel that resonates how I felt. And so now it's like I have this natural gift which has been sharpened into a skill which is matched with a desire to never have anyone feel how I felt. Mm. And it's like there's this perfect storm in my life that enables me to actually help people with the thing that I am so deeply tied to helping people with. Yeah. And then this kind of, like I said, just this unique, I have this unique gift and this unique skill. And the final thing about like it being why I'm on this planet, my relationship to spirituality has changed a lot over time. But what I will say is that working with clients is the most spiritual thing I have ever done in my entire life. I have no idea how I know all of what I know and how I always have. Again, I, I've I, there's a there's a ton of skills and I get that, but there's something deeper. Why I always know there there's some why somebody sits down in front of me and for some reason it's like I know all of it. I know all of their beliefs. I, it's like, I see this whole picture and then I see, it's like, I see who they are and what they're capable of. And I see where they are. And I'm like, Oh, well, of course there they are. Right. And it's yeah. like, that's so obvious to me. And for me, that feels like I'm tapping into something spiritual. It's not that I'm just like that smart. It's like, it feels very spiritual for me. And so for me, my work is the thing that ties me to like this spiritual practice, even though I work with business people it's like i work with really successful totally. entrepreneurs and yet and yet there i am having this like kind of little secret spiritual experience but yeah my whole life it's just like this is why i'm on the planet this is what makes the world make sense the world makes sense to me because of my work so interesting so just to share my parallel like i i, I told you my story so i've i grew up very afraid of everything didn't have a career relationship at all with my dad and that was my biggest pain i was like i don't want everyone anyone to ever or, or my mom i'm like i don't want anyone to ever feel this way yeah and then bodybuilding and muscle building itself changed who i am so much mm -hmm. and gave me the confidence and you know what i'll say is the character and eliminated my fear and allowed me to then be a better dad to my son and so my mission now is like i want to give that to every dad out there which is why i work with men over 35 i'm like mm -hmm. listen or any man who ultimately wants to be the best version of themselves so they can show up for their kid yeah. and help build that next generation because I know what that kid was going through. I was that kid right. who was just alone and afraid of, I was afraid of my shadow, I was afraid of everything because I had no safety. Yeah. So interesting. So I, I've turned that into my mission now. I'm like, do I love muscle building? Yeah, but it's only because it's a vehicle to help you gain your confidence, to help you gain your, you know, build your character, to help you get over fear. So you can show up for the people around you. I say that all the time. And it's just like, that's it for me. Like, is it muscle building? No, it's like that much. Right. I, yeah, I just, I, I relate so much. It's interesting. I grew up in a very loving family, but I think one of the really big challenges for me was that I was like, I was on the pedestal and then I would come crashing down. Right. So it was like, you're the best, you're the greatest. And then it's like having a relationship with you is painful. Like you know, all of these things, like, and, and I felt like I came crashing down. And what that gave me, the gift in that is wanting people to know that like in their mistakes and in their failures and in their ugliness and in their whatever, it's like that they're still lovable. And it's like this ability to see beyond that that's not who you are. It's just what you did. It's like, it's, it's no big deal. And yes, people need to be held accountable for their actions, but within the, there's two contexts, right? There's a context of worthiness of love. And then there's a context of behavioral accountability and that those two things are very very different and that they can coexist 
So for me, it's it's such a gift to have somebody show up with all of their stuff, all of their bad choices and all of their feelings of pathetic and weak and whatever and being like, yeah, so there's a bunch of feelings, but shit you did. It's not who you are. And being able to see past that and see, I see you and I won't forget that I will never forget what I see. Like I see you so clearly that nothing will change my mind. There's nothing you could do to make me not love you because the love is already there. Now, yes, we do need to work on your behavior because your behavior has consequences and that's important, but that it's not about the love being given or taken away, that the love is the thing that's solid. I told you this at dinner last night. I had a client recently who I graduated. I'm so proud of her. She's amazing. And, you know, she was in tears and I read her in a first session. I do a little assessment. We do a current state and an ideal state. Current state is what are you struggling with in this moment in your life that you want to be different? How do you feel that you don't want to feel? How do you want to feel that you don't feel? What are the behaviors, right? So it's just a really clear picture of where you're stuck and where you're struggling. And then this is like the ideal, like what is the absolute ideal for how you feel and what your life looks like? So I read her, her current and ideal state and she was just, she started crying and she was like, it's incredible that like this, this ideal was a dream. Like, I can't believe I feel this way all the time. Like, I can't believe that this is who I am. And like, she's like reading that current state. It's like reading about someone else. Like, I, I hardly even remember feeling that way. And the thing that she said is she was like, you saw all of me and you didn't flinch. And I was like, no. And she was like, you loved me and I believed you. And now I love myself that way. Right. And it's like, that was that journey and i think that that encapsulates to me it's like what what it's all about it's like in the beginning i'll love you and what you'll get at some point is that i'm your mirror that i will hand over the baton in the beginning it's like i've got it like when someone shows up i'm like whatever i've got you i don't care what it is i've got you and it's about me taking it on that i've got you but at some point what you realize is you're the one that had your back all along you just didn't know it and you needed to see things a little bit differently so you can realize you were the one holding you all along it wasn't me but in the beginning, I have to take that on for someone because they don't always realize that yep. they can do that. Yep. And then there's this moment when all of a sudden somebody's like, oh, shit, that was me. Like, I, this is me. This is me. Right. And it's like the idea of holding up a mirror to someone. It's like, I have a really clean mirror. I see who somebody really is. Their version of their mirror is really, really dirty. And so I'm just sitting there wiping off the mirror. And at some point they're looking at themselves and they're like, I'm amazing. And I'm like, yep. And they're like, whoa, everything I've done in my life makes so much sense. Like, of course I screwed up in all those ways. I was totally blocked. Like, of course I was an asshole. Like, I felt totally powerless. Like, of course I treated people this way. Or of course I got capped in my business. Or of course I was so driven and I never came home and I was a shitty father. Like, of course I was. Now that I understand all of these beliefs and all of and this identity and these emotions and these memories, like now that I can see this, like, of course I was the way that I was. And now... I can have compassion for all of these versions of myself instead of feeling like I was a piece of shit or I was lazy or I was whatever. Of course I was that way. But now without that, now I'm free to create a life from this very different place. Yeah. You're so, I feel like I hear where you're coming from and I, and I feel where you're coming from. You have this amazing ability to give love. Like you're seeing other people for everything they are and then... Uh, you know, using your term, seeing the seeing the the dirt on the mirror, and like, oh, I want to get that away, and eventually they see it as well. Flip that around on yourself. Like, yeah, how did you train yourself to receive love, and, and are you capable? Because you certainly can give it, and I could see that. And 
Um, but receiving love is, I think, one of the hardest, you know, I'm yep. speaking for myself. Yeah. But also, I'm sure there's a lot of people listening who are like, yeah, I think I, I'm really good at giving love. I can give it to my partner. I can give it to my friends. I can give it to my children. But I don't need it myself. Yeah, that's, I mean, I think it's such an important one. So the answer is kind of, um, it exists in chapters of my life. I would say for most of my life, no, I could not receive it at all. I absolutely rejected it and it made me uncomfortable. I have a theory. Yeah. <laughs> What's up, Mirror? <laughs> I have a, I have a, I don't know. It's a, a thing I've come up with, we'll call it, that has impacted me really, really dramatically personally and has been really, really huge in my work. And the concept is that the thing that we give to, well, part of it is not my concept. Part of it is kind of a thing. I'll tell you where I've developed it. Right? But there's an idea that we give to others what we need for ourselves. Mm. And my kind of spin on that is that we're practicing, that we are ultimately going to be, uh, I'll use the word client, we're going to be our hardest client, but, you know, we're going to be the, and so we spend our entire life developing this skill from a really deep self-love that it seems like we don't love ourselves because we don't receive the love. So I'm, I'm going to speak as myself. I'm not going to speak about this generally. I'm going to talk about me. So my story was that I didn't love myself and that the reason I couldn't receive love was because I didn't love myself and I only loved everyone else. So I had this kind of self-loathing story that I didn't love myself, but I changed that story and my story now goes like this. Because I love myself so much, I didn't focus on receiving love. I focused on giving love because I knew that when it was my turn, I was going to need to be really, really, really good at it because I was going to be the hardest client I had ever had. And so I spent my life really mastering the art of giving love to people who didn't want to receive it and learning the ins and outs and the nuance. I learned about every objection and every resistance and I learned how to penetrate every wall so that when it was finally my turn, I would be so good at it that I would be able to get in. And I believe that for everyone that whatever their version is, for some it's receiving love and for some it's something else. But I think that there's a lot of power in that story. And I just want to extrapolate on that a little bit, which is a lot of people in this industry, this industry being like kind of the personal development industry, I hear a lot that you need to learn how to love yourself. And I just absolutely reject that. I think that's ridiculous. I think the idea that we don't love ourselves and we need to learn how is, is absurd. One, it sounds really hard and stressful. I have absolutely no idea what to do. And I feel like I'm starting underwater and trying to figure out how to become a pro surfer. It's like, I'm getting knocked in the waves. Like, don't ask me to be, to be a professional. So my perspective on this, and this is something that I started to see, it started coming out of, I can always tell when I have something new, because it will come out of my mouth with like four clients in a week. And I'm like, okay, listen, ah, there it is. And so this is something that's become really important to me which is the idea that we love ourselves unconditionally, but the way that we have seen love expressed in our life is typically pretty unhealthy. And so we have a very unhealthy expression of love. I'm going to go ahead and use myself as an example again and throw myself under the bus. So inside of my head was really an awful place to be. I wouldn't wish it on my enemies. It was just me berating myself from morning until night trying to figure out how to be better. And so, of course, the self-loathing story really fit. Of course, I don't love myself. You don't love yourself if you talk to yourself that way, right? If I loved myself, I wouldn't say that I hated myself. I wouldn't say that I was worthless all the time. I never would have done that. But here's, here's the shift. Why did I beat myself up from morning until night? Why did I berate myself? I berated myself because I believed if I berated myself, I would be better. I wanted to be better. Why did I want to be better? I wanted to be better because I wanted to be loved. Why did I want to be loved? Because I love myself so much. 
So berating myself is a you really- You want someone else to love you as much as you love yourself? No, that I wanted to experience being loved. Huh. Why would I want to experience being loved? Because I love myself. Right. If if I didn't if I love you I want I want you to feel loved and if I don't love you I don't really care if you're loved or not why was I so desperate for people to love me because I wanted to feel loved why did I want to feel loved because I care about myself hmm. because I love myself and so so there's a couple pieces here right so if you look at anything in your life any place in your life where you're like but I was lazy if I loved myself I would have gotten up and worked out but I didn't get up and work out and it's because I don't love myself. That's one way to look at it. Another way to look at it is you were lazy because being lazy made you feel safe because you were afraid of making a mistake and you were afraid of trying and failing. Mm -hmm. Let's give one example. You were afraid of trying and failing. Well, why were you afraid of trying and failing? Because you didn't want to lose love. Why didn't you want to lose love? Because you love yourself so much. It all comes back to self-love. I don't think we need to learn how to love ourselves. I think we love ourselves, but we have very unhealthy expressions of love. This might be how we watched one parent love another parent, how we watched a parent love us. Well, I love you, but I scream at you. Well, I guess you express love by screaming at someone, right? Or there might be abandonment. On some level, if you are biologically wired to believe a parent loves you and then they abandon you, you might associate abandonment and love. So we have really like unhealthy, screwed up ways of expressing love, Right. An example that I've thought of before. Right. You imagine there's a man who had a very violent, abusive father and he grows up and he gets married and his wife gets pregnant and he panics because his unborn child, he loves more than anything in the world. And he's absolutely terrified that he's going to be a shitty father. So he leaps. For the kid who's just born, does it feel like his parent loves him? Mm. No, but for the father who left, that's love. It's an unhealthy expression of love. So the love is there, but the expressions are really, really broken. So one of the tools that I've used that has been really, really profound is asking, is this how I want to love myself? When I'm acting in a way that doesn't serve me, again, whether it's within the fitness world, undisciplined or lazy, if I know that everything I'm doing is coming from self-love, I get to ask, is this how I want to love myself right now? And then you get to say no. No, I don't. Okay, well, how do I want to love myself, right? So you're still going to be doing the same things, right? You still have access to all the same things. But if everything is an expression of your own self-love, you get to ask, do I want to love myself in a healthy way or in an unhealthy way, right? So if I'm sitting on the couch, is this how I want to love myself right now? No, go to the gym, right? If I'm about to eat a donut, like that feels comforting, but it's like, is this how I want to love myself? No, how do I want to love myself? By eating the broccoli, right? Whatever those examples are. All right, so reconcile this for me. Yes. The being driven by habit yes. versus being driven by consciousness, right? Yes. The ability to make conscious decisions because we, we know that so many people are not conscious of what's happening, what's driving them. They're just being. Mm-hmm. So how does someone who's sitting at home is just like not even aware of what they're doing 95% of the time mm-hmm. start to make a change to all these things that are, you know, like, hey, I want to move towards self-love. I want to be able to stop myself before I eat a donut and say, is this how I want to love myself? But I don't even realize till after the donut's gone that I feel like shit. Mm-hmm. Not, yeah. And now I feel terrible about myself. Yeah. So I think there's two different ways of going about this. One of them set a timer set a timer once an hour it's funny that i thought of that my i dad, know people that do i was gonna say my dad used to set yeah. a timer once an hour and ask himself you know these questions but one way to do it is you set a timer and you ask in that moment whatever i'm doing 
instead of is the, you know some version of is this what I want to be doing but is this how I want to love myself right now that whatever I'm doing right now is this serving me is this how I want to express my self-love or do I want to express it another way and I will say that the word self-love coming out of my mouth I know that it sounds very like kumbaya right <laughs> and I don't mean it that way and I really want to be clear on that I don't often talk about self-love a ton because it is like a very gushy thing and the goal is not to be hyper gushy but I think the goal is to kind of reclaim it that I feel like the industry has kind of hijacked it and turn it into this like live laugh love poster it's kind of like being an alpha male you're like I don't want to be part of that community right. that overuses that term right like <laughs> right exactly I'm an alpha male right? right it's like I love myself right it's just it's I just I, I think that it's been kind of destroyed a little bit and so I think I'm just like staking my claim and, you know, that it's like it, it's it's a valuable understanding that we are trying to show up for ourselves, Right. And I think maybe a more masculine way to look at it is this is this how I want to show up for myself right now. Right. So you think of like kind of a masculine, like a, a, a guide, a provider. Um, yeah, just some sort of like a leader. It's like, is this how I want to show up for myself? Is this how I want to lead myself right now? You know, kind of whatever the language is, whatever your language is great. But yeah, so I think one way to do it is to set a timer. And I think another one is like, if you're listening to this podcast right now, you're you're getting a lot of kind of like, it might be new information. For some people, it might, whatever it is, like use this. So start to become aware. So now that you have this information, there's a difference. It's funny, we were talking about this breakfast that I say this all the time, but information doesn't change behavior. Insight does. We have a, a store of information and it's in our prefrontal cortex. Again, that's not the part of the brain that changes our behavior. It's not the part of our brain that drives behavior. So there's a reason why you've read 700 books and you still are acting the same way. It's because it's a different part of your brain. So you might have a loaded prefrontal cortex that is filled with 17 courses and 109 books and TED Talks and whatever. And that's great. And it's not that it's not valuable. It's valuable, but it doesn't change behavior you have to personalize something as an insight for it to change your behavior. It has to make its way to your amygdala. It has to impact the emotional brain, the decision-making brain. And so what, if you take this podcast as information, it will just be another interesting thing where if you start to integrate it and you think about how does this apply to me, that's where it becomes valuable. The minute that you listen to this and you say, how does this apply to me? You will create insight. Insight changes behavior. So you can behavior change by starting to develop awarenesses about okay, if I am the one who is sitting on the couch with a donut in my hand right in this very moment, we'll use this moment. So take this as insight about yourself and then start asking these questions. These questions will lead to awareness. The awareness will lead to, to lead to insight. The insight will lead to behavior change. So some of it, you don't even necessarily need a tool or a process. Those things are incredibly valuable, but even just the insight alone will start to create this awareness in your life that can have you choose to behave differently in any given moment. So it's really the awareness being the first step. And so for anyone listening, the question I would encourage you to be asking throughout this conversation is, how does this apply to me? Mm -hmm. Like, how is Ben talking about me? Or how is Britt talking about me? Like, how are they talking about me? How does this apply to me in my life? It's one of the most valuable questions you can possibly ask. So as you were speaking, this may be a tangent, but you said, you know, is me eating this donut an expression of self-love or whatever? Is this how I want to love myself or accept myself or whatever? And I was just thinking like, what if I just want to eat a donut? I'm like, there's people out there who just rationalize it to themselves, no matter what it is, good or bad. I just want to have a drink. I just want to do something that's destructive. Is, is there some way to look at certain people who simply don't, they just don't see it as a destructive behavior as bad. They just see it mm -hmm. as, a, as a behavior. 
Yeah. Right? Does that make sense? Yeah. So if I just yeah, like, so. I can walk to the store right now and eat a donut and be like, it's just a donut. But I know it's I I know it's bad for me. But I'm just like yeah, it's just a donut. Yeah. Where, how do I how do I um yeah navigate that conversation? Yeah, I I mean I th- I think it's a great question, and you have to on some level want to change. Yeah, is there just like a value there thing? I just don't value to, it. There has to be a desire. Mm-hmm. If you can tap into the part of you that's like I know this is unhealthy. If you can awaken that part of you and say, I value health, good. And I mean, if I really went deep with somebody, I could figure out where that was blocked. Mm. But like without really figuring, you have to, there has to be a part of you that wants it. I have a really quick, funny story. Um, Probably, I mean, at this point, almost 10 years ago, I had a client who sent me her father and like she was paying for it. She was like, I just want you to work with him. And I had my first session with him. He was one of the most argumentative people I've ever met in my life. And normally that's fine if they're bought in, but he was doing it kind of for his daughter. So I get through the first session and I'm like, I I can see, I can see a roadmap. Like I, okay, good. Like I, I think I got it. I was like, it was exhausting, but I think I got a roadmap. We show up for a second session and it would be like one step forward, two steps back. And And I said to him, I was like, I feel like you don't want to be here. And he was like, no, like I, I want to be here. Da, da, da. And I'm like, okay, well, I was like, cause I, I feel, you know, like whatever, like this kind of argumentativeness and there's people who are blocked, block and argumentative are different, right? Like there's people who are super blocked, but that's really different. And so finally at the end of the session, I was like, I appreciate you so much. And this is wonderful, but I really don't think I'm the right fit for you. And he's like, what do you mean? Of course you're the right fit for me. This was so valuable. And I was like, I hear you and like, I'm sorry, I'm not willing to work with you. And I said to her, I was like, I can't take your money. I mean, he would have stayed, but I fired him. But he just didn't see value in working through things. Like he saw value in arguing. Mm-hmm. And there are people who see value in arguing, but also see the consequences of arguing. And they're like, I love arguing because I love to win, but I get that it impacts my life. And if there's just that little fraction of, I get that it impacts my life, good you can make a change you can make a change but you have to believe that it is desirable to change in order to change it from my perspective so i would say if somebody's like i actually don't think alcohol is a problem i love drinking and i think it's good for me that's very different if someone's like i don't care that it's unhealthy my body's a tank and i can eat as many donuts as i want and i don't care from 300 pounds like i don't care then then you're not set up to to make the change yeah. So, yeah, it sounds like a value conversation. And yeah, oftentimes one of the processes we go through in our coaching is trying to, you know, reconcile. We talked about this also goals and values. And if those two things are out of alignment, you fail. Right. If you can put those two things in alignment, it, your, the likelihood of succeeding increases. Now, hopefully we can stack now the belief change on top of that. And be yeah. like, okay, we actually have a, a process here that can be effective for so many people. What you're offering people is just so incredibly valuable. Um, one of the things we spoke about yesterday, I think is worth bringing up is your perception or your uh, belief around anxiety. Yeah. So a couple different things. The first one is we often talk about anxiety as an emotion. And I, I think that there's two important, two different ways to look at anxiety. And I think both are really valuable. I want to start with a non-emotional one because I think that one's a little bit more palatable. Um, anxiety is often related to fear. And So this goes back to the safety conversation that rather than defining that like I have anxiety or I feel anxiety, if you can look at anxiety as my brain is telling me I'm unsafe, it's really, really easy to reframe anxiety. If you go back however many 
however long ago to the conversation about unsafe versus uncomfortable, the unsafe versus uncomfortable shift is absolutely critical in this case. If you notice that there's anxiety, it is because you're often your brain is telling you that there's a threat to your survival and there's not. So walking through, my brain is trying to tell me that I'm unsafe. And it might be, again, because I'm up against a deadline and my brain tells me that if I succeed, I'm safe. And if I fail, I'm unworthy. And so I'm not safe. And then look and say, okay, so if this doesn't work out, let's imagine that I fail. And the goal is not to say, I don't care and I fail. You still do everything in your power to succeed, but you have a foundation instead of if I fail, I die, which is what your brain is very dramatically laying out for you, right? You get to say, in contrast, my brain thinks I'm unsafe, but I'm not actually unsafe. And if I fail, it's not unsafe. It's just uncomfortable. It's just an uncomfortable thing I'm enough to deal with. Then you can go forward with the project or the task or whatever it is without the anxiety. So you can get rid of anxiety that way. That is a primary cause of anxiety is fear. There is a secondary one, but we have to talk about emotion. I think another way to look at it is that anxiety very often is not an emotion. It's resistance to an emotion. So when you're not being honest with yourself about what you're actually feeling, you shove that down and it can create anxiety. So looking a level deeper, if you just have generalized anxiety, sometimes it can be because you are unconsciously looking at everything in your life as unsafe right? It's like the idea of living with landmines, right? It's like if your entire floor is covered with landmines, now all of a sudden you have anxiety about walking. It's not because who you are is someone with anxiety. It's because you view everything as a landmine. If you stop viewing it as a landmine, the anxiety goes away. It's a great analogy. Right. Another way to look at it is that when you believe that emotions are unsafe or make you weak or pathetic or unwanted or inappropriate, you sometimes shove them down. Sometimes shoving them down, you shove so much energy down that your body now is vibrating with all of this energy and we call it anxiety. So a very powerful thing to do. So here's the difference. If it's a triggered anxiety versus a generalized anxiety, it's a bit arbitrary, but I think it's a valuable kind of framework. If you're feeling anxiety because of something, use the unsafe to uncomfortable framework. If you have generalized anxiety and you're just laying in bed, you're not thinking about anything, you're not thinking about your to-dos, you're not thinking about your job, you're not thinking about your relationship, if you just in general have a feeling of anxiety, I would look at what emotions might I be shoving down and actually learning to express those emotions can kind of, you think of from an an energy perspective, you're literally getting the energy out of your body. When you cry, you shake right? You're physically moving energy. When you yell, it's like your body's moving. So it's like actually just moving that energy can help to release the anxiety. So much. It's such an important part of, yeah, most people when they're experiencing stress, what are they doing? sitting still right? Right. in a car or they're like, you know, yeah. on their phone or something. And yeah. there's no ability to process the yeah, it's 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 really interesting. An animal, if you look at an animal that right, almost gets hit by a car, it will stand on the side of the road and violently shake, mm-hmm. right? Because we have to move that energy through our body. And, you know, from a neurochemical perspective, when you feel fear, your brain will flood your body with toxic neurochemicals, which will just hang out in your bloodstream and ultimately get stored in your tissue. Mm-hmm. So moving it, your body can actually process and digest those chemicals and move them through your body. So there's the kind of energy piece of like physically moving that energy. And then there's the neurochemical piece of through moving it you get to metabolize all these toxic neurochemicals so they don't get stuck in your tissues yeah and we spoke yesterday about the inextricable infinity loop to use your term between the body and the mind yeah i think that's an important concept for people to know because i don't know that it's common that people realize how much your body influences your mind and your mind influences your body yeah 
I think in our world, like the, you know, the fitness slash personal development world, that maybe for me is one of the most powerful knowings. Yeah. Because when something, when I get stuck in my head or when I feel like I'm down or when I feel like I'm, you know, anxious or depressed or whatever, whatever the emotion is, like for me, I've learned movement, challenge, doing something hard allows me, allows that thing to no longer feel hard. Yeah. But I don't think everyone knows that. And I think yeah. there was a nice way to kind of merge our worlds. Yeah. You know, you're, you spend a lot of time in what I call the black box of the mind. Yeah. And I spend a lot of time what you call the black box of the body. Yep. That's and it. There's a beautiful synergy that uh, I'm so grateful for you bringing to our world. Is there any other area that maybe we haven't touched on that you'd be like, hey, we should probably go here for the listener. Like, this is important. Don't miss mm-hmm. this one. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's something I we've we've touched on it, but I want to make sure that we kind of spotlight it. That I think it's really important to take inventory of your life and to take inventory of yourself. Right? There's two main forces in your life: your internal experience, right, and your external world. Your external experience, so the experience that your external world can kind of create, and focusing on so once you can kind of take inventory again of like who I who I want to become and what I want my life to look like you then have a a roadmap right of of like okay this is what I want and I just really want to reiterate that the first step is figuring out what you want and the second step is asking yourself what are the blocks I have to creating that that I think so often we're taught to just go after what you want and I think that's really great advice I also think it's missing something because going after what you want doesn't address the places where going after what you want is hard, which again is asking you to have willpower. I believe that willpower should be a last resort. I don't think that our life should be defined by our ability to have willpower. I think that's a really unfair ask. Again, it's about 5% of our brain power and asking us to create our dream life from 5% of our brain power is a really, really hard uphill battle. Mm -hmm. So I just really encourage people to take inventory of yourself and your life and to figure out what do I want and then to come back and figure out what is the block and then put your energy into addressing the block, right? Don't put the energy into trying to go after what you want first. And I think that this goes against a lot of what we're told. Step rather than a leap. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yes, exactly. And so I think there's just something really important about I, I, I mean, I, and I know that I already said this, so I'm kind of happy that I'm reiterating it just because it feels that important that I think in a lot of, you know, our lives, we learn, go after what you want. And yes, that's, that's great. But I don't think that's the first step. Hmm. I think the first step is look at the block to what I want and put my energy into that. Because if you don't remove the block, you're going to, your capacity, you're going to be like a three out of 10. And every once in a while, you'll have a surge to a seven, a surge to a 10, but right. It's like you're, you're up and down and up and down where if you put your energy, you really put your energy into removing the block, then you just take off. So is it just, I just want to make sure I got this. So identify who I am, where I, where I am now, where I want to go. And then it's just consciously what, what the first thing that comes up for me as a block, like, if you don't have a process of like, because I think it happens so fast. Just like you just know. It happens so like our brain is so down yeah. to be skeptical, to yeah. doubt, right? The what ifs, the buts. It just it happens, it it happens without our consent, right? It's like you're you're really thinking, right? So imagine again, if it's a fitness goal, you're like, I have this fitness goal. It's like, oh well, I'm I'm not strong enough for that. 
oh, all right, well, there's your block. Right. If you believe I don't have the genetics for that, I don't have the genetics for that, right? I don't have the discipline for that. And so once you can start addressing those blocks, those blocks are no longer holding you back, right? So it's like if you've created whatever you have playing at 30%, right? Playing with all of these blocks or all of these things taken off the table. It's like, what would you be capable of yeah. if you remove those blocks? So is the block a belief always? Yes. Um, Sounds like it. So I'm going to say that the hesitancy is in a lot of ways, yes. I would say also the identity that we've created because of our beliefs. So yes, the blocks are beliefs. And I think there's an added layer living with our beliefs helps us to create an identity. And so we not only need to change the beliefs, we also need to change the identity. And Can you I think, discern those for me? Yeah. So a belief would be, it's hard to lose weight. An identity is I'm someone who struggles with losing weight. So an identity is I am someone I, who, so when you get clear and, and, and there can be a lot of overlap, but I think an, a helpful way to look at your identity is what you expect like of yourself and from yourself, right? And again, it's kind of what you take on and off the table. There's a, there's a lot of overlap, mm -hmm. but I just, I think it's really important to get that we don't look for things that we've deemed impossible, right? And the impossible doesn't need to be the moonshot, right? The impossible can be that I could have the body I want without discipline or without working really hard or without giving up my life or relationships like think about how one-dimensional we get right it's like in order to have what i want that has to be the only thing in my life it's funny because like you come on and you simplify belief change and like people come to my world and and you know they have a belief around their change in their body like it's gonna be hard i'm like no it's not yeah you just have no idea what you're doing you're just like running really hard in the wrong direction i say that all the time like, stop going over there like slow down for a minute take one step in this direction everything becomes so much easier like Oh, it's not hard at all. That's the beautiful thing about the internet mm -hmm. and about the way the world is becoming smaller. Right. Is now we have access to the best people in the world and now nothing needs to be hard. You just need to find the right person with the right process. I mean, it's a process for you. Maybe it's not like you know, No, I mean, there definitely is. It's just, it's so funny to hear you say what I say all of the time, but like coming out of your mouth. So easy. People come into my world all the time and they're like behavior change is hard like changing your mindset is hard and i'm like if you don't know what you're doing it's really hard mm -hmm. of course everything that is now easy was once hard right, right? everything everything and yeah. it's so easy now and mm -hmm. and going back it's funny coming full circle and it can be fun right like it can be whatever you decide and a, a lot of my advanced work is all centered around infinite possibility and some of the things that we'll do is we will explore these questions of how can we create, like, if there's a particular feeling that you want to feel, right? It might be creativity, right? It's how do I imbue more creativity into my life? And so we'll look at, like, complex problems or we'll, we'll look at simplicity and we'll start to look at cultivating a creative mindset or, or creative experience in your life. And so when I think of, like, this personal work, right, people show up and they're like, it's going to be hard. It's going to be painful. It's going to take forever. Either they come from the world of therapy where it's, I'm going to have to cry on my couch and complain about my family, or they come from the world of, like, this kind of mindset business. And then it's like, well, I have to do this and I have to do this and I have to do that. And it's going to be hard and it's going to take a long time. It's just how I am. And the reality is it can be really, really easy. It can be really fast. And it can be whatever you want it to be. It can be created, like, whatever the the kind of goal is. It can be creative. It can be fun. It can be healing. And different people will come in with kind of different desires. If the goal is to feel wonder, 
we create a wondrous experience, right? If the goal is to have it feel healing, we imbue a lot of love and compassion into it. If the goal is for it to make you feel fierce, we can help you see how this is you being fierce, right? We can make the experience and you, we, you can make the experience whatever you want it to be, but you have to be willing to question the beliefs of how it is going to be upfront. Right. I love the concept of infinite possibility. And one of the things that's coming up from my, in my mind as you're saying that is a lot of the people we both work with, I'm going to guess, have a story around the things I've learned to do on a day-to-day basis or what got me here and I'm doing well. I don't think I'm doing as well as I could be doing. Right. But for me to stop doing what I'm currently doing, some of the balls are going to drop. For me yeah. to give up the time, like say I, say I have to interject, even with 10 minutes in my morning routine, that 10 minutes is something that's, uh, this thing I've already got in there, like I'm, pr- I'm pretty good with my time and this thing I've got in there is doing a, doing a pretty good job already. So I'm going to have to put that ball down or drop that ball or move something out of the way in order to make time for this new exploration of infinite possibility. And I'm, I don't know, like... That, that feels like a big a big ask. And we talked about one of my clients yesterday. I was like, this guy's doing so well in all these areas, but he just keeps, like he refuses to give 30 minutes to right. this new thing that would completely change his life, but he right. refuses to see it. So what do you say to those people who are yeah. refusing to give up that little chunk of time, giving yeah. up the little to get a lot because they don't necessarily know? Because if I do this, it's predictable. I know it's like, it, you know, the difference between a slot machine and a vending machine, right? right? yeah. I put this in, I know what I'm getting now, it's a vending machine. Right, yeah. But this other thing, that's a slot machine. I don't know that I want to risk my time and my money to potentially not get something back. Right. So the first thing I would say to that, and this goes back to the idea of being in choice, if being on overdrive has served you and you are afraid to put it down in the beginning, you don't have to, Right. Like you can play with all these things and still be in overdrive and then you can try to move out of overdrive. And if you don't like it, you can always go back. Right. So the goal is not to say never be in overdrive again. Everything is contextual. Mm -hmm. There might be a time if you're doing a launch, there might be a time and a place to be in overdrive. So it's not saying that if I get rid of it, it's like I'm smashing it to the ground. Like sometimes people have an idea. Right. It's like that we're juggling. And if we stop juggling, all the balls fall. We're not juggling. Like everything is actually held in place and we're more doing maintenance on things, right? If you spend a day in bed, we've all gotten sick. The balls didn't drop. Mm -hmm. So the idea that the balls are going to drop, you're not juggling. Everything is already in place and we're just going and visiting those things and doing maintenance and bolstering those things. So I think the first is to realize that you're not juggling. And when you're playing with something, you don't need to put it down. You're just playing with it. That's number one. The second piece is the more interesting one to me. If you believe that your worth and value is tied to doing hard things or or overcoming obstacles, what are you going to create in your life? Hard things and obstacles, right? Not because those things are necessary, but they're necessary for you to feel worthy. So when you start playing with kind of expanding your worldview, what you often open up space for are things like efficiency. (laughs) We all know that efficiency is valuable, and yet we very often unconsciously reject and push away efficiency because it puts our survival at stake. Well, I need to have obstacles to overcome to prove that I'm good, right? Good enough, smart, capable, whatever it is. Or I need to do hard things to prove to myself or that's what makes me useful or utile and that's what I need to be in this world. So what you're doing is you're actually questioning that what I'm doing is working, but that doesn't mean it's the most efficient. It doesn't mean that it's the best version of that. You don't have to be less successful. I very often will have high-achieving clients who are worried, if I work on this, am I going to lose my drive? Totally. 
it's the opposite. Yeah. It's the opposite. There was, I've, I've quoted this study like 50,000 times, but there was a study, I believe it came out of Harvard. I should go find it, but um, years and years ago, and it was a study on motivation. And there were two groups of people that each did progressively harder tasks. And group A was paid more as the tasks got harder. Group B was paid nothing. And the kind of obvious idea up front was that group B was going to give up first because they weren't getting paid. And what they found is it was the opposite, right? And during the interviews after, what they found was that group A had kind of decided that the amount that they were getting paid was no longer worth how hard the task was. So they gave up. Group B gave answers that showed that they were tapping into their internal intrinsic motivation and desire to solve problems. And so they solved it until they can no longer solve it. That we have internal motivation. From my perspective, there's no such thing as a motivation issue, right? There is often a lack of belief in the outcome, a lack of belief in yourself, right? So what happens is when we are driven by, if I'm not, if I'm not doing this, then my world falls apart. We're being driven by fear and scarcity and smallness. And so we're, we're typically like rather singular minded. What happens when you break that open is not that you're like, well, forget it. I don't want to achieve. You actually get to tap into your intrinsic motivation, which typically leads to more creative ideas. You start looking for efficiency. You start thinking outside the box. The willingness to make mistakes and fail allows you, again, you start to tap into flow state. You start to tap into your most creative brain. So it's the exact opposite of what people think, that when people start to shift these things, their their desire for success doesn't go away. It just shifts and it becomes a creative endeavor. Success becomes something you play with instead of something you do to survive. And it's not that you're less motivated. Your motivation just changes and it becomes more flexible. And most importantly, it becomes more contextual, right? So you're able to contextualize your desires around what you actually want and what's possible and what you want to build. And I think this kind of goes back to, to something that we've talked about with the second mountain, that you know, the first success is very much about like, I just need to achieve, I need to achieve. And then once that happens, sure. it's like, what am I doing? What do I want? And then when people don't do the work, they go build the second exact same business. And at some point they get really burnt out for people who do the work after the first mountain, kind of the internal work and the exploration. Typically they start to build something from a different place, right? They build from a place of passion or impact or, you know, whatever that is. And it becomes a creative endeavor where not only do they find great success, but they also find deep fulfillment. Mm -hmm. Tell me about this. I'm, I'm going to be the first one to reveal the event in November. Tell me about Ooh. this event. I know. I, I know. You oh, know, my event. Yeah, 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 yeah. A close friend and you don't have to give all the details. I want to just, my, just yeah, no, there. totally. Have been kind of dreaming into this event for years. There's fifth. Not to hate on masterminds, they're amazing, right? But there's fifty thousand of them. There's a ton of masterminds, and there's so many different types of events, but him and I really wanted to create an event that was centered around infinite possibility and kind of the intellectual pursuit. And so the goal is not to come with your business and your business ideas, but to come to help you fundamentally change the way that you think to expand your mind and kind of cultivate an infinite possibility mindset. And something that we really wanted was to create something that was going to be play intellectual pursuit and renaissance time. Perry Marshall calls it renaissance time. And the idea is that there's, you know, kind of like the play hard, whatever that kind of might look like. And then people get to come with questions that we explore together um, in a really kind of curated environment, you know, have a Michelin star chef to come and cook really intentional, beautiful food, and then to have this kind of creative fun time. So it'll be a really small event. 
Um, we want it to be a really small curated group, but it's something really outside of the realm of a lot of what I do, where I have my one-on-one clients, I do my corporate work, I'll do, you know, workshops or keynote speak or do group work or whatever. And so this is something that's like really different and fun outside of it, which the goal was to create a, my dream event and his dream, like the event that we would want to go to. So it's just been so fun dreaming into it. I was in San Diego with him last weekend doing some creating and dreaming. It was just, it's fun. And I think it's just so important for me from a personal and I believe that the personal and the professional, right? It's like, there's, there's so much overlap. It's kind of the foundation of all the work that I do is kind of looking at the intersection between the two. And I think that for me to also make sure that I'm kind of cultivating my own creativity and my own inspiration and my own infinite possibility, it's like doing something like that. It's like, I get so much out of my clients and out of my work, but doing something that like really kind of moves me and into something different is, is really exciting and fun. Yeah, Brett, thank you so much for making the time to come out and share your wisdom and your energy and your love with me. Thank you. It's yeah. been uh, truly amazing. I'm sure the audience is going to love it. And if you want to share where they can get in touch or. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so a few different ways. Uh, first, my website is just brittlefko.com. It'll be in the notes, I'm sure. B-R-I-T-T-L-E-F-K-O-E. Yeah. Uh, brittlefko.com my instagram is more personal than professional but i do have some stunning mountain photos um i spend a lot of time backpacking and uh snowboarding mountaineering whatever so it's just a fun place to see beautiful photos kind of get to know me as a person and that is brit adventures is my instagram and i would say that it you know if there's interest book a call i'm in a really cool space with my business right now where i'm really interested in just continuing to get to know people and kind of seeing where they could fit within my ecosystem. So if you're interested, shoot me an email or, or book a call through my website and I would I would love to get to know you. We will link to all that in the show notes right. and anything else that you decide to send us and hopefully we'll link to your event soon. Cool. So yeah. sure have a lot of interest in that, but thanks. So Great. Thank you so much. Appreciate you having me. That's a wrap, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much for being a listener of the Muscle Intelligence Podcast, a loyal listener. And I want to give you some summary points. And so a lot of listeners have asked, like, hey, Ben, these podcasts are long, or hey, Ben, there's a lot of stuff. I'd love to hear your opinion and your feedback on these podcasts. So one of the things I'm going to c- commit to doing from this point forward is giving you a nice little summary at the end of the podcast and like, hey, what should we be taking from this and what should we be applying to our lives? And so one of the greatest things that I've taken from Brit and Brit continues to reinforce in my life is while as a man, uh, someone who maybe identifies as a high achiever and sometimes high achievers mute our emotions. We negate our emotions. We, we dismiss our emotions. We say those aren't important. Sometimes living out of alignment with what we know at our emotional being, our spiritual self, can ultimately create the lack of harmony in our life. If my emotions are telling me one thing, yet I'm doing something else, create a bit of a disconnection between your prefrontal cortex, which is our logical brain, says I need to know, I need, I know I need to do this, and what's happening ultimately at our subconscious. So our subconscious mind is driving the bus, right? It's driving behaviors, it's just, it's making decisions that you don't even know you're aware of. Um, so many of those unconscious belief patterns are just reinforcements from our childhood, or maybe from what we believe. Uh, about the world or what we believe about ourselves. And oftentimes, the, the disconnect between the uh, subconscious mind, call it the amygdala, and the conscious mind, prefrontal cortex, causes pain, causes um, turmoil internally in the brain. 
And one of the things that I've really um, benefited from Brett teaching me is to spend a little bit of time when you're making big decisions. So first, don't make big decisions in emotional states and highly emotional states because that can lead to rash decisions that lead to bad decisions. So learning to, to exist or cal- learn to calm yourself and learn to exist in a calm state and then pay attention to what your body is telling you, to what your your subconscious is telling you. Ultimately, these things live below the surface of the conscious mind. So if you think of the iceberg, right? Everyone uses the image of the iceberg. Your conscious mind is a tiny bit above the water. Your subconscious is everything below that. And so if we can start to tap into what our subconscious is actually telling us, sometimes it's just closing your eyes and being still and being silent. Sometimes it's feeling those emotions because those emotions are there for a reason. They're there to drive your decisions ultimately or there to influence your direction. It doesn't have to make the decision for you, but it can influence it because you're like, oh, does this feel really good for me? Do I want this to do it? Does, does my soul want this? Does my, does my body want this? Or is this going to make, this going to cause more stress for me? Guys, I know sometimes as a high chief, we got to make quick decisions. They got to be fast. They got to be accurate. They got these are big, big decisions we're making. What I encourage you to do, one thing that I've started to do is anytime I have a decision in, in front of me that's significant, I at least commit to taking five breaths. I say, I want to take five breaths and just allow myself to feel centered. And so instead of having a mind that's chaotic, that's full of information from all these different parts of the world and all these different sensory experiences that the world is just bombarding us with, I was in this chaotic type of thinking. I want to center myself. I want to say, what does it feel like to be calm, to be centered, to have my brain and my heart in harmony because I'm doing some resonance breathing, right? Resonance breathing four seconds in, six seconds out. Try five to 10 breaths like that. See what's going on there. See how that changes your mood. See how that that small amount of time, right? That's about somewhere between 60 and 120 seconds. See what it feels like and how it influences your ability to be effective in your decision. And here's the thing. You can't do it once, right? You got to commit to doing it over the long haul. And for me, it's been paramount. It's been instrumental in allowing me to be more effective or at least more sure of my decisions. Because when I make a decision that's quick and irrational or, 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 or um, unthought about, right? I'm making a decision in an irrational decision or irrational state. I'm not sure if it's going to go the right way. But if I sit with it for a minute and I ask myself, and I just simply listen to what my body is telling me, what my subconscious is telling me, right? I believe my subconscious is telling me something through my body. I've been much more effective in my decisions. I've been much more effective in my communication. And I also notice when I don't make decisions from there or when I act from a place of chaos or frustration or anger or any of these other emotions that ultimately create improper decisions, ineffective decisions. And so thank you, Britt, for being a guest of the show. Thank you for bringing your wisdom and thank you for teaching us all tools uh, to continue to unwind uh, all the things we want, all the things we need, ultimately the mergers of uh, what I'll say is our soul and our desires. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. Um, I I will continue to do my best to summarize the podcast in the end, doing my best to be as objective as I possibly can with the scientific episodes, and maybe just giving you my opinion like today on some of the other episodes that are just truly incredibly valuable. So gents, ladies, thanks for being here. If you're not already subscribed to the Muslim Intelligence Podcast, head over to Spotify, YouTube, or Apple Podcasts and subscribe there. Leave us a review. 
One final thing to remind you of, the muscle intelligence phase one program, phase one series of videos is launching right now. Head over to muscleintelligence.com slash series. If you're a man over 35 who ultimately cares about his long-term trajectory of his health, of his body, of the way you look, you feel, and you perform, in as much as you know how much this is influencing your ability to live your life with purpose, passion, and vitality. If you're not optimizing your physical body, if you're not optimizing the way you look, feel, and perform, gentlemen, you're leaving something on the table. And for me to die leaving something on the table feels like a disservice to whoever or whatever you believe is putting us here. Gents, thanks for being here. Uh, head over to muscleintelligence.com slash series, S-E-R-I-S. And I look forward to seeing you on the inside. Thank you so much for tuning into Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Bikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.